You're listening to The Public Sector Show by Tech Tables, a podcast dedicated to sharing human-centric stories from CIOs and technology leaders across the city, county, state, and federal agencies, joining in the conversation and touching the hearts and minds of leaders across technology today. From mission-driven leadership to cloud, AI to cybersecurity, workforce challenges, and more, never miss insights from peers and vendor partners across the public sector. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to techtables.com and drop your email to subscribe. New podcast episodes come out every Tuesday and Thursday, along with weekly behind-the-mic newsletter. And one of today's podcast sponsors is Tech Tables Plus, an engaging new community where you can have early access to never-before-released episodes, early access to live event recordings, early access to weekly three interesting learnings, early access to live event ticket purchases, no episode ads, and more, plus three extra special bonuses when you sign up today. Bonus number one, access to the CEO show. Bonus number two, access to the Higher Ed Show. And bonus number three, access to the Digital Show. Join Tech Tables Plus today. As always, thank you for supporting the Tech Tables Network. Today we have Morgan Wright, the Chief Security Advisor at Sentinel One, podcast co-host of the Game of Crimes podcast. Morgan spent 18 years in state local law enforcement as a highly decorated police officer, state trooper, and detective. He solved a lot of cases, interviewed a lot of people, interrogated a bunch of bad guys and suspects. And girls. And girls. And, and girls. In fact, he was trained by the original members of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit on serial crime profiling. This led him to training spies and spooks at places like the NSA. Simply, we're going to talk a lot about Morgan's impressive background and resume today. Morgan, welcome to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. Hey, this is awesome, man. This is a long time coming, so thank you. This is a long time coming, and I'm, I am giddy, and I'm excited to, to kick this podcast off. But before we begin, today's podcast episode is sponsored by our friends at Sentinel One. Sentinel One redefines cybersecurity by pushing the boundaries of autonomous technology. That's right, right in the background. For those of you on video, Morgan has a Sentinel One logo on his other monitor with its Singularity XDR platform. Sentinel One is the leader in endpoint protection and beyond. Simply put, they stop the bad guys. To learn more, check out SentinelOne.com. All right, Morgan, did I rep Sentinel One well? Any changes to my sponsorship pitch? Well, you'll be receiving a letter of a conditional offer of employment, so we'd like to bring you on board, and we have great plans for you, Joe. <laughs> that's that's really funny you say that. I actually was at a dinner in, oh, I think this was Washington, D.C., with the state CISO, Nancy Ranisak, and it might have been a lunch, I can't remember, dinner or lunch, one of those, and she said, Joe, if you didn't run your own thing, I think Sentinel One should hire you. And I was with, I want to say I was with Steve Bell and Brad. That was so funny. I am on my own, but if Sentinel One wants to continue to keep sponsoring this awesome content, I will not say no. You will not say no. Capitalism is a great thing, comrade. Capitalism. Uh, yes. yes, we love capitalism. You provide a service. People pay you. And the marketplace decides. And you know, what's kind of funny about the marketplace is some people have forgotten there is a marketplace, but there is a marketplace and whoever provides the best service typically will win, win out. And so it's that's an how ultimate, we like it. It's an ultimate meritocracy. I mean, you've got to show that you're good at what you do. You've got to bring the right value for the right kind of outcomes that, you know, they want. And uh, yeah, again, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's, it's open competition. Look, 
granted, not everything is full and open because relationships matter, as you find out in this business, right? So, and that's why we want to build better relationships, higher relationships, deeper relationships. But at the end of the day, if your stuff doesn't work, relationships only carry you so far. At the end of the day, you've still got to provide the outcomes that make your customer, your client look good, not just yourself. Yep, that's exactly right. And we want, you know, and I think you're right. It's the ultimate meritocracy and incentives matter. I didn't, I mean, I took an econ class in college and you, you hear about incentives, you hear about, you know, you hear about, you read about in a textbook, supply and demand curves. But you really, you know, when I started running this business, it, it was the ultimate incentive switched because if I cannot get sponsors for the podcast, if I can't deliver this, I can't pay rent. I got a wife and two kids. You imagine the incentives on that. You have got to hustle your face off. So when people ask you, how do you work so hard? This is how I got a wife and two kids and I got to pay rent. So there you go. Spending your money right now as we speak. <laughs> They're at Barnes and Noble spending my money. I have her money. money too. Like my wife says, there's your money or there's our money and my money. So. Yeah. And I hired my wife. She was a college professor. I hired her to come to come work. So we work together, which is great. But it is definitely a it is a fun ride. It is the ultimate meritocracy. I was actually thinking about there's a great book by Mark Cuban, How to Win at the Sport of Business. And one of the reasons I like that book so much is Mark Cuban owns the Dallas Mavericks. And so he kind of taught it's a very short book. He didn't really want to write a book, but it was just kind of his lessons early on. And then, you know, one of his famous quotes in that book is the only thing you can control is your own effort at the end of the day. And I mean, that's it. It's a great reminder to everybody that the only thing you can control is your own effort. You can't control if people want to build a relationship with you. You can't control if they want to come on the podcast with you. You can't control anything. Only thing you can control is your own effort. Quick side story before you go. One of our podcast episodes is Christy Schiller. Christy is, she created the charity called Canines for Cops after she saw a story about a Houston a law enforcement officer that lost his dog in the line of duty. So, but when, when we had her on the podcast and we're talking, Mark Cuban actually slept on her couch back when he was just uh, working his way up. And when he started creating his first company, she had the chance to get in on it. She said, no, nah, I'm going to go do this other thing. And she was telling us about that. One of her great regrets is that she didn't get in with Mark Cuban on the ground floor of his company. Yeah, that's those stories are surprisingly I have. And it is not at all a humble brag story. I've had a couple of my own. I slept in an office early on. One time I slept, I was sleeping in my car, not the last couple of years, but before I was married. And if you don't get I, enough sponsors, you'll be back to sleeping in your car, right? <laughs> I, I, I will. If there are not enough sponsors, I will be sleeping in my car. And so please sponsor the tech tables, tech tables. So Joe does me. So I don't have to go sleep in my car. Yeah. I was sleeping in this old, this old Mazda I had at the time. It's, and I think, you know, I started, there's a, this is actually another, I know we're going off a little bit of a tangent right now, but so one of the things I'm doing right now with tech tables is I'm actually splitting the podcast apart. I started as one podcast. Now it's more of a network of podcasts because there's a couple of CEOs that I've actually interviewed and I found the CEOs to be so amazingly helpful. And so, and th these are like, you know, to me, they're, they're, they're pretty big companies. They're, they're probably the market caps probably in that five billion range, which has been super awesome. A couple of like just come right to mind are like Rob Lacasio at Live Person and Blake Hall at IDME, and they all have similar stories of sleeping 
on someone's couch. And I'm like, I don't know why it has to start there, but that's just where it starts sometimes. So, Morgan, did you sleep on a couch? Do you have a couch story? No couch uh, story. No, no, no. Because I, well, no, actually, because I started off life as a police officer, then a state trooper, then a detective. So, yeah, well, I didn't have a couch. We we used to joke our what's black and gold costs 35000 and sleeps three. It was a Kansas Department of Transportation truck. I would say that every now and then when you're working late hours and, you know, you got to, you might catch a, a couple of quick winks, you know, a little bit of shut eye because I, but I will tell you, I did sleep in my office when I was a detective, we'd be working homicides or some big cases might be some robberies, some things that were going on or we're looking for a suspect. And I remember a couple of times leaning back in the chair up against the wall of the cubicle, part of our cubicle, putting my feet up on a desk and just, you know, catching a little bit of Z's. Yeah. How about on the road right now? You travel quite a bit like myself. Are you ever super exhausted at the airport you're waiting for your flight. You go well, from think, event to event. I think everybody is. I try and manage that too because it's like, man, you got to stay active. I've got a Peloton. I ride outdoors, you know, so I try and stay active, you know, doing that. But it's like, it's tough. Let me tell you, there was a time when I, when I was in previous jobs, like at Cisco, I had a global role. Bill Labs, I had a global role. I'd be going to Malaysia and Australia and stuff like that. But I'm not that person anymore. It's like, I got to be, number rule number one, my rule for travel, I do not do red eyes, period, ever. No more again. Yep. If it's not during my regular hours, I'll I'll stay the night and I'll go the next. I'll get up. I'll get up early the next morning. But I don't do red eyes because the effect it has at my age and how long it takes to recover from it, you know, is significant. So right now it's about preserving my health, which preserves my energy, so I can do this kind of work. So yeah, but there are times, man. I I tell you, I <clears throat> last year was more travel than I anticipated. I haven't been a one k on United since 2012. So I made one k in December on my last trip. And it's like, it's a huge difference flying back. I can't remember where I was flying back from. I think I was flying back from San Francisco. Actually, I was doing, yeah, doing a tour out there and I got to fly on a 787 Dreamliner. I got upgraded to first class. It was like, oh yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. good. I, I love that. That's kind of, so I, I love Delta. It's just, it's my airline. If I can do it, I'm going to fly Delta. And I, my kind of hack is I've got, I can't get to, to whatever their last one is diamond or whatever because you've got to spend an insane amount of money but i've got to i think it's platinum and so what i do is i just buy a main cabin ticket and then immediately you get upgraded to comfort plus which is awesome so like immediately so i get i always get a comfort plus seat and then within 20 or i think now it's 48 hours before the flight if there's a seat i just get you get on the list and like yeah. half the time i end up in first class and I just bought a main cabin ticket and I'm like, this is awesome. But I found too, like, cause I mean, I, I don't do red eyes either. It is very difficult and it definitely wrecks me the next day. So I'm going to stay, yeah, I'm going to stay in a hotel. I got a Peloton. I don't know what we can see, but I got a Peloton right over here. Yeah. I actually started going to the gym also to do this, like, as far as like group fitness conditioning and mo mobility. And so I've been lifting weights and just getting stronger and like my body feels great because sitting, I mean, you're like right now, like we're sitting and like, it's, you can't sit all day and not exercise. You'll, you'll just break down at 40 yep. and you won't be able to work. Um, but I had some folks where, cause I travel a lot and, and I, I go to hotels and people will go, man, I want this life. And I'm like, you no, don't. You don't. You know, it's not a badge of, there was a time where I was a 1k on United. I was the top tier at Hilton. I was the top tier at Marriott. 
And, you know, and then you realize you wake up one morning and you go, where am I at? What am I doing here? Who am I supposed to be seeing? And it's like, you know, so it's like, hey, it's a friend of mine told me, look, death is nature's way of telling you to slow down, you know, and have a life. So, you know, every now and then you got, it's just like, so for me, it's not, I've done all the travel. I've been 50 different countries, you know, we'll talk about some of that later. It's like, but people think, oh God, it's gotta be so fun and glorious. Let me tell you what a lot of those trips were. You fly in. Before Uber and Lyft and in some of these countries, none of that stuff existed anyway. So you take a taxi to the hotel, you go to sleep because of the time's unchanged. You get up, you do your meetings the next day, you go to a restaurant, you have dinner, whatever, go back to the hotel, you know, whatever. It's like you very rarely did I get to go out and see stuff. Now, there were times where I would take some extra days. I took my wife with me on a trip one time when we went to Nice, France, because we were meeting at the Cisco offices in Sofia Antipolis. And we went to we went to Monte Carlo. We went to Saint Tropez. We made a weekend out of it. But you know you don't get those. You got to take those chances. She went with me to the Bahamas on a trip, and so I mean we've done that a, a few times. But I, most of the time it's like I'd be going to you know Malaysia, Indonesia. It's like you get down there, you do your work, back on a plane, coming back. You can only do that for so long before it's like, okay, you need rest, you need recuperation, but you need family time too. Yeah, you need family time the night. I think one of the things I really like when I was an employee, I think it's really hard when you're an employee for a company because they write the rules for what you can do for travel. And as the business owner, what I love is I just, my wife comes, she'll come with me. So we were talking about the Orlando live podcast tour. She's going to come and the kids are actually going to come too, which is great because they're going to go to some theme park also down there. And that I think eases the like, hey, I'm on the road, yeah. family burden piece, which is a ton of fun. The school year is probably the hardest, especially now we've got a 13 year old and a four year old. And so the 13 year old hasn't really gone on any trips. She's going to come to Orlando. It's just normally too tough during the school. She, I think, this time, because there's the theme parks, she's going to, she'll, she'll take off school. The four-year-old, you know, they're all about routine. <laughs> and so when we pull him, he gets all grumpy, <laughs> like the kids do, uh, or like adults do, do. You mess up people's routine. Yikes. But funny, they're very my excited. Cats, funny, my cats are the same way too. Got the same routine with them every morning. And if, if I'm not around, the wife pays the price. Oh. Uh. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. So the cats are sitting now. What are the cats' names, by the way? I know they're hanging out next to you right now. Well, one is here, one is in the front room, but like folks watching video, there's one of them right there. That's Fanny. So I have, I've got several places around the house. So that's Fanny. I named her after Phantom of the Opera because when we first got them, we picked them up kind of like from a rescue association. So I looked at her and she was like, she's so cute. And the person says, she has a sister. We'd hate to split them up. So we ended up with a two cat deal, but... So her face looks like Phantom of the Opera. It's almost all white except for some gray on the one side. So I called her Fanny for Phantom of the Opera. And I was trying to think of the name for the other one. And my wife is an avid gardener. She's a master gardener, got the certification through Virginia Tech. You know, and so I'm walking down our steps and she grows a lot of roses. And I was looking at it. I go, look at that. The, the roses, you know, you know, just starting to blossom out. And there's a couple of rosebuds there. And I said, that's her. And let me tell you what the names absolutely describe rosebud is such a tender little kitty she has feelings they get hurt if i'm not in my chair at a certain time at night if she doesn't sleep with me in a certain position if they don't get their snacks at the right time you know first thing in the morning if they don't get fed i tell you what it was easier raising kids than cats i think sometimes and there's the quote from morgan wright easier raising kids than cats 
You heard it first on, <laughs> on the pod. That's awesome. Okay, so I've got some questions about your bio. I got some questions about your bio. What's the difference between a spy and a spook? You know, not really much. You know, I live in Virginia, so it's really about the same now. There are some people you will find some people that are covert. In other words, their identity is covert. They do not. They and in fact, that's part of what's called diplomatic cover. You work under a covert identity, so you will be working for the State Department, and you will be the quote attaché for the Department of Agriculture or something like that. But you're actually a CIA case officer, an operations officer. And but then on the other hand, they've got the people who what they call non-official cover, for example, and they they have. They are not a. They're not under any kind of diplomatic cover. If you have diplomatic cover and you get caught, you have a. You have an out. I used to carry a diplomatic passport, so hey, might keep them for a while, but eventually you got to turn them over and they got to go because you don't want us getting your diplomats. And a lot of people in the intelligence community work under diplomatic cover. But then you get the you know so spy spooks kind of interchangeable. Well, now here I will tell you, Northern Virginia, we are replete with. Intelligence agencies, I can throw a rock in my neighborhood. I can hit somebody who's on the vice presidential protection detail for the Secret Service. I can hit people from the CIA, the NSA. So spies, a lot of time with people you think operational spooks, maybe folks like at NSA or the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency or, you know, some other stuff. They do a lot of technical stuff. So kind of they do spook stuff. But a lot of spies are really the ones out in the field. And then spooks are kind of a combination of those and maybe people behind the scenes. Okay, and who did who did you enjoy training more? Was it was it the spies or the spooks? Both. I mean, it was really well. Quite frankly, a lot of times when you do, do training, you don't know who what category they fit into. So, like teaching out at the NSA, we had what they called damage assessment agents. So, when there is a release of classified information, the intelligence communities do not have the authority to investigate crimes. That's the province of the FBI. So, the FBI, their counterintelligence folks. In fact, the person who's in charge permanently assigned out to the CIA in charge of counterintelligence is an FBI agent. So they are the only people that have the authority to investigate crime. But what these other members do is they assess damage to national security. And that, that means using polygraphs, you know, they, they investigate leaks, how those things go. So a lot of the training, especially on the behavioral side, was to teach them the ways to interview and interrogate, or as they say, interview and elicit information from people during the course of their damage assessment investigation. So, you know, you had a combination, but I did end up training FBI, CIA, Fort Meade guys, but at the same time, state and local law enforcement that involved in interviewing people involved in, you know, crimes involving, you know, crimes against people, crimes against, you know, serious crimes like that. I'm not as educated in this area, but I am a little bit curious. So the Supreme Court docs during the Roe versus Wade that got leaked, is that does that count as a national security? No. It's not classified information. So technically under the law, that is not. In fact, they were having a hard time turning it, turning it into a crime. They're trying to figure out what was the crime, right? So there's some things about release of government documents without authorization. I mean, there's they're kind of stretching it. But no, that's not a, because for it to be a crime, there's categorizations in federal law, United States Code, and the particular titles, but they tell you. That's why there's different markings, like they're what they call controlled but unclassified. That's basically, it's not classified information, but it's like, ah, it's sensitive. We don't really want to release it. It used to be called for official use only, but controlled but unclassified. Then they have confidential. So that's the first level, then secret, then top secret. And then above that, you get into categorizations like top secret SCI, sensitive compartmented information. So, and then you have special access programs and stuff. But as you go up each level, they define what the risk is to the United States if that information were released. So obviously confidential information 
is less risky than top secret information, but there's, it's still a, it's still a crime, but the penalties for confidential versus top secret, you know, the court's going to weigh those things. So, but with the Supreme court, no, that was a, there's still challenged with trying to find exactly what would the crime be as much as it was basically a violation of the, the secrecy that goes around the the deliberations, you know, in the court. This is a great insight. And for those of you who are listening right now, you're like, I, I, I mean, I basically read the Wall Street Journal, and sometimes I'm like, I wonder what like the, the inner workings of this really are. I mean, I just get the 30,000-foot overview level. I'm kind mm -hmm. of curious. I got one more. I'm just because right. I'm curious. Far away. We've, we've got Trump's got some documents in his mansion <laughs> in Florida. Biden's got some documents in a trunk, in a garage. Was there a crime committed? Not a crime committed? Does that count as a crime? What are your, th I'm just super curious. What are your thoughts on that? Well, certainly, look, so I, I, I'm very careful too because what I tell people, especially when I do a lot of stuff for the media, I do ones and zeros, not R's and D's. But this is actually something my partner on the podcast and I have talked about. By the way, my partner, I just got to pimp him out real quick. If you guys have ever watched Narcos and seen the takedown of Pablo Escobar, my partner is Steve Murphy, one of the two DEA agents that brought down Pablo that they made the series Narcos about on Netflix. And But with, this is actually one of the questions we did on our Patreon channel. People said, you know, what about that? And I said, look, our position is, if you take, if you're in violation of, of, of taking classified information, everybody, the penalty ought to apply to everybody the same. Now, the law talks about, you know, did they knowingly do it? In other words, you could have an, you, that's why you have to do the investigation. So you have to do the investigation to find out, was this like one sheet of paper that was in a thousand sheets of paper, but it was in a section that was for personal papers and somebody inadvertently put it there and it went out the door? You know, that's why you have to do the investigation to find out, or was it? that you knew you had this stuff or you took it. And once you're in possession of it, you should have given it back. So some people say, well, Trump did this and Biden did this. Look, at the end of the day, the biggest thing is what's the information? Was it exposed to anybody? What's the damage to the United States? And that's why you have to treat those, quote, as a crime scene, you know, because what you want to do is preserve it, collect the information so that you can go back later and determine how did these documents get here? What was the route they got to? You know, I have questions on what Trump did. I mean, I have questions on what Biden did, you know, just because it's topical right now, it's happening. My biggest question is, look, Joe, normally when you have people moving papers around their interns or their low level employees, I I am flummoxed as to why high paid attorneys are in there moving boxes of papers around. So you always have to be careful, especially in Washington, when you jump into the middle of a narrative. What the real beginning is, where did these papers go from the White House? What path did they take to get to the Penn Center? What path did they take to get to his home? And who handled those things? So look, there's a lot of questions and it could be it's totally inadvertent. I hate, you know, one one lesson I've learned after investigating crimes and stuff, you follow the facts, you get, you got to just you cannot, too many people want to change the facts to fit their theory. You don't do that. You change your theory to fit the facts. So for me, I'm very clinical about it. It's almost like when I, uh, when I hurt my knee and I had a orthopedic surgeon come in, he basically took a pin, a clothespin and jammed it into the heel of my foot. And I screamed and it yelled. It made no difference to him. Pain is a diagnostic tool. He was very clinical about it. So you have to be very clinical about these things. You got to take as much as you, I know it's not the agents, it's usually the agency. So I know people pile onto the FBI or the Secret Service or other folks. Look, I've worked with a lot of these folks. It's usually not the agents, it's the agency. It's the politics at the upper levels. But at this point, what you got to do is you've got to, you've just got to follow the facts 
and go where the facts lead you. Now, by the way, the FBI does not prosecute. The FBI does not make decisions about prosecuting. That's up to the U.S. attorney. And so at the end of the day, or the special counsel that they've appointed. So at the end of the day, it's up to them. And by the way, here's a fun fact, just so that your folks know. Especially if you're at the federal level, you just don't go willy-nilly start investigating stuff. A lot of times you have to have a predicate offense, so you have to have enough information to where you go to the U.S. attorney and you say, look, if we make this case, if we build it, will you prosecute it? Because the last thing you want to do is spend three or four years working on a case to take it in front of an assistant U.S. attorney somewhere and have them go, eh, we're not interested. What did you guys do this for in the first place? So. There's always cooperation with the Department of Justice and the U.S. attorneys as you work on cases, and it's no different here. So biggest thing is here, Joe, we got to get to the facts. We don't know all the facts yet. And until they come in, you know, if you don't keep an open mind, you close off, then you start you start with an end in mind, and then you work your investigation towards that, and you taint the way you look at information. So you have to stay as objective as you can as you're collecting the facts. I love this. So... This is absolutely fantastic. I'm just going to plug two things. One, if you want more of this, and I didn't even set this up. This is just how it went. I, I just this isn't even in the notes I wrote. Go to Morgan's Patreon channel. I think it's the Game of Crimes Patreon channel. We have two things. Yeah, Game of Crimes podcast.com. You'll find us all over. You know, we're on any platform, Game of Crimes, and then patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got several things that we do, but we go into case of the month. We talk about, we do some fun things too. We analyze 911 calls. You know, we'll do things, our monthly bonus video. Uh, we analyze movies. We rate them on the narcometer, scale of one to 10 kilos, accuracy, authenticity, believability. And in fact, we actually had. So the North Hollywood shootout involved, you know, the you know the series of robberies that were going on. Well, the big shootout that was on TV, one of the LAPD guys, Rick Massa, was on our show with us Christmas a year ago last because we did Die Hard, the greatest Christmas movie ever made. And he was on there to analyze LAPD tactics. And we both agree there's no – in all his years on LAPD, he never heard somebody say, maintain your reconnoiter, which is one of the stupidest lines out of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that that is hilarious. Okay, so uh, I'm I'm becoming a Patreon member. This is this is awesome. I love it. Also on the merch site, they've got this sweet coffee mug. Now I confess, I dropped the ball. I'm very good about normally capturing information in my commitment tracking system and then processing that information. I meant after I met with Morgan the first time to order the coffee mug to have on this podcast and yeah. i dro i just dropped it dude no no it's look it's well, a, that's actually this is not about that look i appreciate you bringing that up obviously sentinel one sponsoring this not game of crimes podcast which you can find on any major podcast platform by the way if we haven't mentioned that by the way we found out too we are in the top 0.05% of all podcasts in the world i love that that's that that's amazing tech table the tech tables brand is not that big, but I am very proud that if you were to type in public sector into Apple Podcasts, it's me, Microsoft, and McKinsey are the top three in the public Yeehaw. sector. So You're I love You're competing against the big boys. That's the way to go. Yeah, we're competing against the big boys. We we like that. And there's a lot of public sector podcast stuff out there. So we are uh, we're pretty pumped to be to be there and hopefully we will we're gonna take that number one, take that number one spot. I think just on the pure amount of 
content that we are we are trying to push out. So I'm pretty well, excited about that. Well, and it's not that. just content. I will tell you, it, people got to love your content too. So you have to give them a reason to come back. And that's why with us, like we do long form. We don't do short form stuff. We do, Everything we do is long form. Many of our interviews are three hours or longer, but we've had the people who ran the investigation on the Green River Killer case, Dave Reichert. We've had actually the guys, so Brittany Greiner and Victor Boot were just in the news. We had the DEA agent who ran Operation Relentless to get Victor Boot. So he's been on our podcast. We've had victims of crime, victims of sex trafficking. George Young, who is Pablo Escobar's business partner, we got the last podcast with him. I mean, the capture of El Chapo. I mean, you, the guy who pulled Saddam Hussein out of the spidey hole. You know, we've got, I mean, we've got so much great stuff. But the best thing about that, it's like this. They tell their story. We let them tell their story. It's about them. We've got everything, the Breonna Taylor case in Louisville, Kentucky. We have the sergeant who was the first person through the door, got shot in the leg. You know, the thing we like about that is that it changes people's perception of what really happened. So when you get first person narrative and it's from the people who were there that wrote the book, we probably have 40 books on our webpage from all the episodes we've done, people who have written books about what they've been involved in. So it's just, no, it's really awesome. We, we you know, we've got great guests and they tell great stories. Yeah. Yeah, I feel I feel the same way. We've got a great guest on today. I love that. So one last thing about before we go a lot deeper is your sister. So you're in your bio, your sister once accused you of being a spy because you were spending a lot of time in foreign countries like Pakistan, Turkey, Colombia, and the Middle East. You said you can't prove it, so there. Now, is that an effective mantra? You can't prove it, so there. How does that work with your wife, your kids? Like, do you use that on a regular basis or? Well, so there's an old joke between the law enforcement and the military is they say, no waiver, no statement, no poly. So admit nothing, deny everything, make counter accusations. And so it's one of those things is like, look, but again, at the end of the day, it's like, it's not what you believe, it's what you can prove, you know, and it's, that's, that's the way it is with law enforcement It's what can you prove? I, I think you did it. Well, can you prove it? Same way in a court of law. So no, that's not a mantra. I don't use that with my wife. Well, you can't prove I left the toilet lit up. Well, there's only two of us in the house and you're a guy and I'm not. So I don't need to, I mean, it's pretty self-evident. So, you know, there's, there's things like that. So no, I don't use that as a regular mantra. That was more just got to have, got to poke fun at yourself, you know, on these bios on our podcast page, which by the way is gameofcrimespodcast.com. If I didn't mention that before. I love that. Okay. So we've, I've decided to break up this podcast into three sections so for everyone listening, that was kind of kind of the intro piece of it. But I want to dive really into what I'm going to call part one is is background on Morgan. So that's going to cover everything from his his kind of early stage police officer, state trooper, detective. We'll move into kind of that FBI journey. We'll transition when he moves into the private sector. We're going to talk about what it means and the priorities of a chief security advisor at Sentinel One. We're gonna we're gonna even talk more about the podcast, Game of Crimes. And then part two, I wanna dive into cyberspace, a history, the coming cyberspace Cold War with Russia. This is based on a presentation that Morgan has given to his private clients, maybe a couple keynotes. And if he's okay with it, I don't know. We'll ask him right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, no, that's I, I give it publicly. So, no, it's based on a war game exercise I did early on called Cyber Strike Warfare in the Fifth Domain about – I presented this out at the National Defense University to some feds and some other folks. But it's how would Russia invade Ukraine? And believe it or not, about 80, 85% of it is what they did. 
And we're going to talk about that. We're also going to overlay the photos. Morgan shared his his slides with me. So kind of on the post-production side, what we'll do is if you're watching this on video, you will be able to have the images kind of overlaid on the screen. By the way, inspiration for cyberspace, a history came from my daughter was recently reading Hogwarts, a history. And so I saw the book and I was like, how about cyberspace, a history? Fun fact. And then part three, we're going to wrap up with cybersecurity threats coming up in 2023. It's early on in January. So we've got a long year ahead of us and love to hear about Morgan's insights on that front on this Martin Luther King Jr. Monday. All right, let's kick off with part one with 18 years in state and local law enforcement service. Let's dive deeper into your background as a highly decorated police officer, state trooper, and detective. How did you get your star and what inspired you to choose that line of work? I grew up in a military family. My dad, like I said, was World War II and a Vietnam vet, so I grew up as a military brat. I was born at Fort Riley, Kansas. We moved around the world. I grew up in Iran, went to kindergarten, first and second grade there. I spoke Farsi fluently as a Ute back in the day. So, you know, and it was just being around, I think that, that culture, that ethos and stuff. And then I was trying to, but I was, but I had, believe it or not, I had a, one of my talents was music. So I could pick up instruments and learn them very quickly. So I started in sixth grade, one year behind the other kids, but I caught up and passed them. And I actually ended up with music scholarships to college. I had three different offers, but I was I said, oh, I'm going to go into music. I'm going to, I wanted to play, believe it, it, I'm dating myself, but back in the day, I wanted to be in the Johnny Carson band because Doc Severinsen was friends with the music director in Concordia or Clay Center, Kansas. And Clay Center was in our league school. I, I grew up in a little town called Chapman, North Central Kansas. And we actually got to go hear Doc Severinsen play. And I got to be a part of that and in the jazz band. So I'm like, I want to go to the, I want to go to Hollywood and play in the Tonight Show band. But Broke college kid, you know, working at the local stop and rob and a state trooper kept coming in, got by the name of Ken Massey. And finally said one, I said, hey, you want to go out for a ride? I said, yeah, sure. I mean, I always been interested in law enforcement. So I went out for a ride with him. I said, yeah, this is what I want to do. So it was fun. The uniform, the culture, you know, the stuff. So that's kind of what got me started. So if Ken didn't walk in and I don't know, did you have a previous relationship with Ken? Or no, he so just, either... I was just, I was working the weekends at the stop and rob and he would come in and, you know, take a break during a shift or come in, you know, get a snack or something. So that's, I mean, I probably would have gravitated towards something like that, but that just accelerated it further. Actually, I, if it hadn't been that, I would have been, if it hadn't been for a knee injury, I would have been flying helicopters in the army. I was in ROTC and I had my packet sent to Fort Rucker, Alabama and a six-year-old kid hit my knee while I was roller skating and thus ended my flight career. Oh. Uh. Ouch, that sounds like it hurts. So music scholarship. So you're, you're, you're talented. You have this dream. Ken comes in. You hop in the car. You're totally sold out. Love that. You serve 18 years. Like what, what keeps you motivated to go that long? I mean, I'm sure there were some really hard days. Like maybe talk, well, yeah. about, talk about that for a little bit. Well, look, it's... Look, I mean, there are some. There's probably there were probably more worse days than there were good days because when you get into doing certain kind of things, it sucks. Working fatality accidents, giving people the worst news they're ever going to get in their life, dealing with people who simply because you have a uniform on, they despise you, and so they spit at you, they kick, they call you names, they threaten your family. I mean, it's look, it just go, that's part of that. Just goes with the job. But I probably would have stayed longer, except for two things. Number one, Kansas did not really have a good retirement system. In other words, your age and years of service had to add up to eighty before 
before you could retire at 55% of what you couldn't afford to live on and 55% of what you couldn't afford to live on in the first place. So it made it difficult, but I mean, no, but I love the work. I mean, but the other thing too, is you've got to, at some point you go, Hey, look, you've got to take the risk. If you want to play on a bigger stage, you got to take some big risks. And somebody explained it to me one time. It's like being a great, it's like being a great Shakespearean actor that plays to an empty house every night. It's not fulfilling. I mean, you want to do something bigger. So the other thing too, it's, it's, it's a tough business. I lost more French to suicide than I did line of duty deaths. And that is it a tough business. They talk, I know they talk a lot about the military 22 a day. That is a, just a horrendous, that's an abominable number, but I don't think people realize that we lose three to four times as many to suicide than we do that are killed each year and reported on in the statistics with law enforcement. So not quite the same numbers because, you know, as the military, but it's, it's high. And so I think it's a, it is a tough business and it is a tougher business today to be in than ever. Yeah, that's, that's really heartbreaking. I didn't actually think about the, the suicide stats for police officers, but yeah, it's gotta be really hard today, especially with the culture and the environment we're at. Yeah. Just hope they're getting their, the support that they need. Probably it's, not, but I'm hoping it's not that as they do. taboo as it used to be. You, you, you didn't used to talk about this. You didn't used to talk about your feelings and ideations and stuff. And now it's like, dude, you need to do it because guess what? You affect a lot of other people, your family, most of all, you know, your friends that you work with. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's something that's becoming more recognized and being dealt with. It used to be taboo, but now it's, it's really front and center. In fact, the department of justice through what's called the criminal justice information services division of the FBI, they now have a voluntary program, but it's to collect statistics because there's far more, I think, attempts and suicides than what we know about. So it's a voluntary effort right now to find to report data and find out what's the actual impact. Was it you? I can't remember. I know. Uh, admit nothing, deny everything, demand proof and picture. <laughs> Sorry. It goes back to our <laughs> mantra. Yeah. Was it you? Was it you? I can't remember where I picked this up, but it had to do with when you see a suicide sign that you're more likely to commit suicide if there's like a suicide help sign. No, that wasn't me. I, that was I, not you. Okay. No, yeah. No worries. Because the only reason I was thinking about that was I drove down to San Diego and there was a sign and on the freeway, it said, looking to commit suicide, call this number. And apparently someone told me the opposite is what happened. It happens. So I don't know if that's true or not, but they should, probably take that sign down if the stats on that are, are the opposite. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I would even say from the wording, I wouldn't have phrased it like that. So look, everybody needs help. If you need help, call here, you know, without reinforcing, you want to commit suicide. Yeah. I think I'll do that today. No, you know, it's just, I'm not, I've had experience, but I'm not an expert on it, but I know enough to know is that I called out some friends, actually somebody I used to work with. I was on the phone with him one day and it's kind of like, I know you've thought about, you've thought about killing yourself. Haven't you? The line went silent for 10 seconds. I ended up, it was on his ass. I said, you need to get some help. And he took a three month leave of absence. It was paid fortunately, because I was at a, I won't say the name of the company, big technology company, but he was able to take some time off and get his head straight. But I called, I mean, I refused after, after a couple incidents, I said, I refuse to sit by anymore. If I think that's what you're up to. And I think that's what you're thinking. I'm going to call you out on it. And I'm going to force you to deal with it. I'm going to make sure it's uncomfortable because guess what? You know, what's really uncomfortable is having me go knock on your door as a state trooper or detective to give your family the bad news, which I worked quite a few suicides and had to do that. So I said, you know, I'm being selfish. I'm not, you're not going to do that to me. So I'm going to call you out on it. Yeah. Well, good for you for making the call out. I think good, good for the friend to accept the call out. I'm 
going back to what you were talking about earlier about the facts, I'm, I'm also huge on reality. Too many people, and I coach high school basketball, so I've got to deal with kids all the time who don't want to face reality. And rea- reality hits some of these kids. To them, it's pretty harsh when they're sitting on the bench and they're not playing and, and they're asking and, they're, and their parents get involved. <laughs> Why isn't my son playing? Well, your son had seven turnovers. He's not playing (laughs) right now. Or they think they're better than other kids. And, you know, being able to handle reality and then make the adjustments that are required, I think is kind of a little bit of what we're missing today, but also what makes a mature adult. And it could be easy as going to the doctor. I mean, I went to the doctor and I got diagnosed with some stuff and had to make some adjustments. And, you know, you can kind of tell yourself the own narrative or you can look at the facts and you take uh, with, the world as you find it, not as you wish it was. I mean, you, yep. you can, there's some sayings about wishes I won't repeat on here, but it's like, yeah, you know, but it's like, but you take the world as you find it. So, and that's why one of the phrases I despise and I do not use, and I penalize people if they use it, it's called the new normal. There's no such thing as, I mean, don't say new normal, because that implies that I'm supposed to accept. Instead, what I look at is, What's my reality today? What is it I can do today that I can actually affect, I can actually change? I can't change what's going on in Indonesia or Australia. I can't change what's going on in Italy. I can't, you know, I, so I don't get I can, I don't get worked up over the news. In fact, I have, because of the work I've done over the years and with the news and media organizations, I watch very little, if any of it anymore, because you know what? There's nothing I can do about it. Now, I will read up on some things. If I have to get on the radio or TV and talk about a topic, I'll go do some search, find out, you know, you know, hey, what's current, what's going on, you know, just so I can opine on it. But yeah, you can get yourself wrapped around stuff you can do absolutely nothing about. Well, you know, I, I, well, I care. Well, I care too. But why show I care? I have I have two charities that I donate to on a monthly basis. And anybody else, I get the phone calls. I'm sorry. This is, this is what I care about. This well, Don't you care about the folks over here? Yeah, but here's what I care about more. And that's where I, I don't have, you know, I can do anything. I, I can donate to anything. I just can't donate to everything. Here's the two things I donate to. Yeah, and that's I love that. That and that's super. That's super important to to recognize. And yeah, all, all, people only have so much time in the day, and I think realizing you know your you're not going to be the savior for everyone on the planet, but you can start with what you can control. And so for me, that's investing in high school kids. You know, when you coach, you've got van rides, you've got to deal with our kids turning in homework. There's life issues. Some kids don't have houses. Some kids do. I mean, it is, it's quite a ride. Yeah. Kind of same thing as like, Hey, these are the, these are the organizations I care about most that I'm going to, I'm going to donate to. And and you care and you're like, hey, I understand. I just, there's only one of me. So, but that's, that's a really great, really great perspective. And glad you, you're able to, I mean, I'm sure that guy's grateful for you stepping in and making that call to him as far as like, hey, I know you're thinking about suicide. Don't do this. So that's a great story. I love that. As you move. So you talked about two things. You said one, Kansas has got a horrible retirement package. Based on what you just told me, it sounds like they got to work out their calculus a little bit better, get the math on that right. So you're not working there to your 100 and something to get full benefits. But number two, you said bigger stage, which kind of leads us to the FBI. Now, I did not work for the FBI. So I just okay. want to be clear about it. I don't know where you got your information. I, I, did, I deny, deny, I den- deny. <laughs> you can't prove it. So there. I Okay. We got it straight. Morgan did not 
work for the FBI. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with that. And look, we make fun of the FBI. It's a standard joke on our podcast. We make fun of the FBI, but that's because it's one of those things. We can make fun of them, but if somebody else makes fun of them, then game on. We protect our own. You know, we, we, you know, we look out for our own. But So we can make fun of them. It's like I can make fun of my family. You can't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Okay. So we are going to scratch that one off the list. Morgan did not work at the FBI. But, let's, but, I, did, let's talk- but I did train them, though. But I did, you did I train spent, them. I spent a year doing their in-service training on Internet investigations when they're first getting involved. And then they were – collection of students and other people that I was training when I was teaching interview and interrogation. So I have, I have worked with them in the past. Yeah, that is okay. So trained, training FBI agents, love that. At some point you step into the next journey, right? This is the, you move into the private sector. Now was the training for the FBI, was that already private sector work or? Yeah. No, that, okay. that was – I was actually – because because I was instructing at the International Association of Computer Investigative Specialists that was – I was on the board there. We were we, we would train three to four to 500 law enforcement officers from around the world a year at a two-week course on the investigation of co- computer crime, the exploitation of electronic media. So out of that, because I was teaching the internet portion of that, the FBI was just getting started with that in 99. So one of the people, the unit chief, said, hey, look, we'd like to do an in-service training course. So – I put one together and went around and did it in several locations. I mean, just for a year, but, and now obviously it's one of the things the student far exceeds the, you know, the teacher. So the, they've gone so far beyond, but you, you got to get started somewhere. So that's, that's how we got started. No, that's great. So I interview a lot of public sector folks and there, there's some private sector folks too. How does, how does that differ? What, what, what would you say are like kind of maybe the two biggest differences between the public sector work and the private sector work? Well, I, here's kind of my standard thing when I talk about especially government. See, in government, you're penalized if you give back money at the end of the year. You've got to spend your budget because then it goes into your baseline budgeting for the following year. The private sector, you're expected to turn back money. You're expected to save costs and do things. And not that there's not a saving cost, but so it's almost kind of like the expectation. Hey, look, I, can, I can't tell you the number of times in September to where you would get these projects where some agency would have five, six, seven million dollars left to spend, and they'd come up with the project so they could spend that five, six, seven million dollars. And that was one of the projects I did in Columbia, Plan Columbia, working on the counter narcotics capabilities and intelligence, you know, down there for, believe it or not, the U.S. Marshal Service that was the sponsor, had the money. But, but, but I think the other thing, though, too, is I think the biggest, one of the biggest things is the transition is when you're in public sector. You don't really have to go look for work. A lot of it just comes to you. I mean, if, especially if you're in law enforcement, especially if you're, you know, a, a CIO or you, you run and people come to you, citizens come to you, you have stuff coming to you. But when you make the transition to the private sector, I've seen so many people go to the private sector, hang their shingle up and expect the phone to ring off the hook. And it doesn't do that. So a part of it is the mindset. There's a lot of people who help the military transition to the civilian sector. This is the mindset. One of our favorite jokes out here in Northern Virginia, because you get a lot of these generals and admirals, they retire and they go to work for a defense contractor or some think tank, you know, but we always joke, you know, why is it, why are generals and admirals, you know, always late on their first day of work in the private sector? Because they're waiting on their driver to show up. No more driver. You got to drive yourself to these things. I was joking with a 
uh, two-star retired general, used to be the Army CIO. He's part of the George C. Marshall Center that I belong to. And I was joking with him about that. He said, you know, said, you're not far off. He said, they've got a, you've got a big transition from the expectations of where you used to lead people, you would set directives and things would happen. And then depending on the role you take, you're, you're back to doing it yourself. So I think, I think the mindset in terms of what's ex the expectations in the private sector versus the public sector, you still want people who are ethical. You still want people who are responsible with their budget, with their money. You still want people who treat people good. You want good leaders. I, I hate the word managers because that reminds me, you want to manage something, go manage a, uh, you know, go manage a, the installation of a pipeline or, you know, I mean, of a physical thing. But to me, you got to have leaders. You got to have people who lead, you know, and understand what it's like to lead in this thing. So, I, and I think that's the other thing too, is understanding the difference between public and private sector. And the other thing too, is the outcomes are different. You know, what you're expected to do in the private sector is different than what you're expected to do in the public sector in terms of some of the job outcomes. So, and, and you know, the other thing too, it's, it's the, I think one of the biggest things too, for me, the, the difference I see is the transparency and accountability. It's huge in the public sector because it's written into the law. You know, a lot of things you have to be transparent about, but in the private sector, there are some different expectations with things that become public because then you have to, your risk is different in the private sector. Then you have to worry about certain risks of litigation and lawsuits if it's not stated on your 10K before it becomes, you know, or if it becomes public and you know, all, all of this other stuff with breaches and stuff. So it's just, a, but I think the biggest thing to me, it's the mindset. You wake up that next morning, do you have the proper mindset to be in the private sector? Do you understand what it means where you have to, you know, what you eat? I mean, you have to hunt. You know, you got to kill what you eat, so you got to go hunting. It's no, you're not a farmer anymore. And, and I'm not, it's not disparaging. I mean, look, there's, look, when I was a detective, I didn't really have to go look for work. I mean, we did some self-initiated stuff, but I can tell you 98% of the time, we had more cases than we could handle. I didn't have to worry about it. Now you'd have task forces and stuff that would do things, but, but, you know, I can tell you when I started doing private work, it's like, okay, to your point, how am I going to put bread on the table? Hey, look, I can tell you this, Joe Tosti starts to Slide. I want to do Tech Tables podcast. I'm sure the first day you didn't have 100 people beating down your door say, Joe, we want to sponsor your podcast. I mean, that you nobody. had to, yeah. nobody. So you got to go out and you got to develop it. You got to you got to go hunting, you know, and that's it. Can you give that hunting mindset? You know, it's it's like an animal, like a cat, really at, a cat at heart is as a lion. Right. But my cats are so domesticated. Now, they still do their hunting activities. They've caught a couple mice for us. They'll still, you'll see them play with stuff. That's their hunting activities. But there's a huge, there's a huge difference. And I think for me, the biggest thing is the mindset, getting the proper mindset to understand what's expected and what you're going to have to do to earn it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. And there's a guy, you probably heard of him, Dave Ramsey, talks about it a lot. You, you know, you eat what you kill. And yeah. end of the day, that's what's required. So I, I, this actually is a fascinating topic for me. And I was kind of curious, what, what traits do you look for in hiring in folks or even advising when people are making that transition? You talked a little bit about it, but I, I can say you would probably pat, like you would have the, the, the sniff test or the smell test of like, this person has it in them or they don't have it in them right now. They're gonna, it's going to be a hard transition. Like what, what traits do you look for? Well, I haven't had to hire anybody for 10 years because I got, you know, when I had to lay, we'll talk about that. I had to lay off a bunch of people, my last executive position. And so I've been doing my own thing for the last 10 years. But 
but I do have a, I do have a, a kind of a litmus test that I use with companies that I advise for, for example, like Sentinel One, or like when I was working with a couple of companies that worked in the intelligence community, they wanted you on the advisory board. It's really, are our missions aligned? Do we have a common culture? Do we have common characteristics? Do I believe in the same things you do, or do you believe in the same things I do? I can tell you right now, there are certain technology companies, absolutely no way that I would take a dime from them. I just, we are morally polar opposite about what we think about the way we approach things. There are some technologies that come from certain countries that I will absolutely have nothing to do with, period, zero. I mean, I got an offer one time to go speak at a conference in China. And so it's people, see, that's the other thing too, is you got to be careful in the private sector. If you get too hungry and, and you, you start you start dropping your thresholds. Well, I won't do this for money. Then it's, well, then I, I'll do that, but I won't do this for money. But I'll do that, but I won't do this for money. What happens is a lot of time, there are certain countries, China being one of them, that can use the money to do things. And it's like, so I had company Tencent offer, said, hey, we'd like you to come speak at our cybersecurity conference. Well, Tencent owns ByteDance, which owns TikTok. And it's like, but I've seen this, I've seen this happen before. And we've seen it play out in Canada with the arrest of the Huawei CFO. And then she basically took, two Canadians and created problems. I'm trying to be tactful about created problems for them to their exit visas. So they basically hijacked them, kept them in the country. And so my thing was, is that, Hey, I'm sorry. First of all, I smoked them out because I gave them a really high price. It was like, you want me to come speak? It's what it is. $50,000, half of it upfront, non-refundable. If you decide that you don't want me to come over, you lose it. First class ticket. Here's the hotel I stay in. You know, basically here's my conditions. Never heard from them again, but I was, but the thing is, the, the danger is sometimes when you get to the private sector is as you're looking to build up your business, you got to be careful about the things that you do because it will follow you wherever you go. And so it's, look, there is one power you have in as a private individual, and you do too, Joe, that a lot of people don't have. You can fire clients. You can fire customers. You can say, I no longer want to work with this company. And I did that. Believe it, if I told you the name of this company, everybody would know this company, but I fired them as a client because- they ignored my advice. They wouldn't do the things I said, here's what you should do. And then it came back to bite them in the butt. And I'm said, I'm sorry, you know, could I have stayed taking a check and money from them? Yeah. But it's like, I can't do that. You know, you got to find, so part of this, are you, in fact, I will tell you a quick story at Cisco. A lot of people think Cisco, you know, they acquire companies that some companies acquire revenue streams because they're building the revenue. Cisco doesn't acquire for revenue. They acquire for intellectual property. They look at where's the gap in our portfolio or product we acquire for intellectual property. So you don't have to have a lot of revenue to be acquired by Cisco. But the other thing, too, is that there has to be a cultural fit. There are times I know where they looked at acquiring a company, but it was not a good fit culturally between how they did business and how Cisco did. So the acquisition never happened. So, yeah, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that the biggest difference, I think it, it goes into the mindset and don't say that you're willing to do anything because I've seen some people do that. And then they get caught up in something for money that they later regret. And I'm not talking about anything illegal. I'm just saying it's just, it's just not, there are some things that are not good business to do. So sometimes you have to starve a little bit to get to the right opportunity. Yeah, no, I love that. I'm actually going through that right now where I'm one of my one of my clients i'm just we're at a crossroad and and it's just time to say goodbye and and that and that happens and i talk to a lot i i probably actually lose a lot more business than than i win only on the fact that a lot of marketing teams will end up sponsoring not not all of them but there are a lot of marketing teams that will sponsor tech tables but 
their one requirement is that I hand a list of emails over for everyone who's either attending a live event or, or coming on the podcast or whatever. And I don't do that at all. I know other folks out there do that. They might want to question their practices, but I think that's a terrible way to, to do that. And so I don't, and I'll lose out, but I just think it's like, dude, you shouldn't be handing people's emails over if they're going to come to an event and they're not like expressingly like good with yeah, that. So your point, that's the point there. Were, I know that <clears> there are things that public at trade shows and stuff. I remember when I was at Cisco running them, like the people, when they would sign up, they would say, Hey, look, you can share or you do cannot share. And if they say, yeah, you can share my email or contact information. Yeah. We take that all day long, but I think that's one of the things it's got to be opt in. People have to agree. And you cannot, without their in this day and age too, if you don't have their permission, I think it's bad form to share information unless you have explicit permission from the person attending to say it's okay to share my information. Yeah, yeah. And like in my world, the dynamic between, I mean, vendors oftentimes or almost always, yeah, are are the ones sponsoring. And so if the vendors are very transactional, that's like going back to the missions aligned common culture. Like I'm out trying to build this community and like, do you want to be in the community? This is just a transaction for you. You can just go hire a lobbyist or someone to go get you a sales meeting yeah. or something. I'm like, I'm not a lobbyist and not, and I've got some friends who are great lobbyists, but again, going back in the private sector, I've run into stuff all the time, probably like yourself of, Hey, you know what? We're just not aligned. It's probably not a good fit. It's okay. Well, you, Move on. It, there's an old thing. It's called the three R's relationships equal results equal revenue. If you're just transactional, then you're a vending machine. That's why I, in fact, I'll tell you one thing. I'll call you out on it. I don't like to use the word vendor and I'll tell you why. If you look up the definition of vending, it's nothing about strategy. It's nothing about collecting requirements and nothing about understanding the problem. The vending machine is I have three things for sale. If you don't like those three things, well, sucks to be you then. If you like these three things, put your money in here, pull your lever or punch the button, and then you get what I've predefined as the requirements. So I said, people, you got to move away from being a vendor. You got to move away. To, uh, to me, it's becoming a partner. I don't like to use all these fancy. Well, we want to be your trusted partner. Quit using jargon. Hey, look, I, I just want to be valuable to you. If I can be valuable and we can have a relationship, great. And that's one of my roles too, is I go out, work with the sales teams, the marketing teams, present, meet with customers, meet with potential customers, meet with existing customers. How do we add value? How do we make it valuable for you to continue to do business with us? But if you're transactional, I've seen that before too. If you're transactional, it's like being at a carnival, you know, Hey, next person up, next person up. I'll tell you what, who got the lesson. Starbucks was getting to that point where it's just like transactional. I I quit going into Starbucks for one reason, not a negative against Starbucks, not because of their coffee, but I just next customer in line, next customer in line. It's like, this is like a cattle call, you know? Yeah. yeah Bring yeah. the next piece of meat up here. Let's get them processed. And it's like, no, I, I want to go. So I started going to places and they, they've changed. I will tell you the two, their personality. They got the message. It's got to be customer oriented. You, you have to be, it's about their success, not your success. Um, and my first thing, you know, I told my strategy is very clear when I was working with teams, whether it's at Cisco or Bearing Point or whatever else. I said, you know, for me, what the measure of success is, I want to be their first phone call. I don't care what it's for. Hey, I, I got I to, gotta, you know, I, I need tickets to the game. Fine. You know, call me. or hey, look, we're thinking about buying a house, you know, kind of an extreme example. Right. But but if you can occupy that space in their mind to where you're you're the first person they think of why because you add value to them because you're the person I want to call that's the position I want to be in I don't want to be one of those things to where I'm competing you know there's a great book out there too called Red Ocean Blue Ocean I don't want to be competing in a sea of red with everybody else I want to do stuff that stands out 
And that's why, whether it's the podcast or whether it's Sentinel One or whether it's, you know, whatever else we do, Joe, it's like, if you don't stand out, then you're spending all your energy and your time trying to differentiate yourself. I'm tired of, look, I want to, I want to find those things where I can add unique value and do unique things and be in a sea of blue, you know, you know, an ocean of blue rather than an ocean of red. Yeah, no, that's really great. And, you know, one of one of and and I'm sure you you feel this way too. Like I love being creative. Like I think the like the podcast expresses creativity for me. I love the I, I do love the live event. They are an insane amount of work, but I do love the live events, especially making them unique. And I'm always asking questions like, all right, like, and Jamie and I, my wife, we'll sit down and we'll go, okay, so we're going to this event. We've got like, you know, what's our theme? How do we not make this boring? What haven't we done? What do people like? What's going to like surprise them? And we don't have any limits and there's no, we don't have to meet with anyone to make a decision. We just sit down, brainstorm, come up with some ideas and just figure out, hey, how can we create the best experience possible? And the, like, I love the creative part, the kind of how I earn a living is this is just the vehicle, which it's, which it's gone through, which is the, and tech tables is the platform, which is funny. No one wanted to hear me speak before. And so, but now that I have a platform, people want to hear me speak, <laughs> which is pretty funny. So it, I, when you probably, it's very similar to you and you're in the game a lot longer than I am. I'm, I'm a lot younger, but when you, when you've got the platform, uh, how do you know you got the platform? No, how do you know you're a lot younger than me? Uh, Are you making couple... an age joke? Is that because of my hair or? <laughs> I got a couple gray hairs right here. My, my... I was telling my wife, do I look like a silver fox yet? And she was like, shut your mouth. <laughs> 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 yeah, we were laughing pretty pretty hard about that. Well, uh, I will tell you through one thing. Have you ever heard of the Savannah Bananas? No. You need to go look up the Savannah Bananas. He's a buddy of mine, Jesse Cole. He's written a couple books about it. They they do minor league baseball, but it's called banana ball. They are so customer focused. They have changed the game. In fact, ESPN did a whole series on them. I mean, they started getting to the attention. It's taken them a while, but they started getting to the attention of people the way they do things, the way they've kind of now they still go out and play regular baseball, but when they do their banana ball, it's like you've got to pitches have to I mean, they've shortened the game. He's changed he has no he has no sponsors on their outfield sign anymore. I mean, they've done everything. You know, you go to these ballparks and it's like Oh my gosh, it's 50 bucks, 70 bucks for the ticket, then a hundred bucks for snacks and everything. They charge one price to get in. And that includes everything that includes your snacks, your drinks, whatever else. So, but what's to your point, he's redefined the customer experience. He's defined, he's looked at it from the standpoint and he'll go out in the stands and be a, you know, secret shopper type of thing, but he's, he'll look at it. Everything from one other people said one time, Hey, look, our drains on the walkway up there are rusty. So he went out and got brand new drain covers, you know, the, just the small ones with the banana logo on there, just small things like that. Their parking lot. Hey, it's bumpy. It's gravelly here. Change the experience on that. So, I mean, that's what, that's, that's the creativity he's got. And trust me, they were sleeping on an air mattress. They were a million dollars in debt. They were dead broke and they had to make this work. So they figured out a way. And a lot of it was changing the mindset and stuff, but yeah, no, I, I, I love that kind of, I love the creativity part. And that's, that's why podcasts are fun too, because it's finding the different guests. It's the different avenues, the things you talk about. It's the, and it's how can we solve the problem differently? I'm doing a couple things like that right now. I've got a, we'll tell you about, I'll tell you about later. We've got a, I've got a, a grant from the department of justice to build something 
I've been working on for a long time called the National Center for Open and Unsolved Cases. So, but that's, but it's a creative way of looking at how do you generate tips for crime and not using the traditional ways. So every, it's all about creativity. That's what, to me, that's the other thing too. I think that's the other thing the private sector can unleash in you is you have the power to be creative without this type. You can be creative in government, don't get me wrong, but you have some constraints. But the, but when you get into the private sector now, it's kind of like, hey, there's a lot of things I can do that I could not do before. How would I do those differently? If I were going to solve the same problem, how would I do it differently today? Yeah, I I absolutely love that. Yeah, the expressing the creativity and 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 I think just figuring out and you nailed it. Like, how can we make this experience phenomenal? And I don't know. I think it kind of goes back to like when I was a kid, I would had back in the day like a Sega Genesis and like a very old Nintendo, but those didn't like directly hook up to a TV. So I remember going to a swap meet. I had my mom driving to a swap meet. I bought a VCR. And I would take the VCR and I'd hook it up to the TV to then hook the gaming console into, and this is pre-Google. There's no AOL, dial-up no. didn't hit the scene yet. And you're having to figure, I'm reading manuals, like, like as a kid, trying to figure out how I can get this system to work. And I just remember always, and then when I got a little bit older, when we got computers in school, I was constantly downloading packages and trying to figure out, I was like helping the teacher install stuff. And so... I think some of those traits of like, hey, like, are you curious? Are you interested in like looking at problems in the world? And I, I love asking how questions. And, and I can tell when someone's like, this isn't possible or we can't do this. Like, oh, okay, well, what, what if you just ask like, how, how could we do this? Like, how could we make this happen? What well, you know, the question I true? would ask when they go, it's impossible. We can't do it. Well, how do you know? How do you know it's impossible? You know what's impossible? How many things that when you looked at Star Trek back in the original Star Trek series, it's impossible. You can't do those things. Guess what? 95% of that technology now exists. You know, so I, I think the only thing I hesitate to use is, but one of my favorite sayings comes from Albert Einstein. He says, there are only two things that are infinite, the universe and stupidity. And I'm not so sure about the universe. You know, I, I just... People are so lim they you know what they do they limit the possibilities because they limit their thinking. So when I was working at DOJ on information sharing, you wouldn't believe the number of people I had come in and say, "Well, we can't do that." And I say, "Why not?" Well, because our policy says forget the policy. What information do you need, and how would you share it? And you know what? <sighs> Made some major major breakthroughs. In fact, one of the biggest breakthroughs we got was the Attorney General at that time, John Ashcroft. His Deputy Attorney General was James Comey. We showed them why you should consolidate all ballistic information into one system. And that was my one of my first early wins in this thing was now it's called NIBIN, the National Integrated Ballistics Information Network. I don't need to go to three systems to look for firearms and casing information. There shall be one repository and it shall be with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, bat fee, but we call it ATF. I love I love that 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 insight the that that background. We also joke, you know what ATF stands for as well? They show up after the fire. Just that's a joke for you ATF people out there. <laughs> after the fire. That was a, I'm actually going to jot that down because I was I just started reading this book that was recommended by a CIO called The Phoenix Project and which is a novel about IT DevOps and helping your business win. And so it's a pretty funny story. I just started it yesterday. And in the opening story, both the CIO and the VP of, of IT get fired. And the guy that's underneath starts to come in and the CEO tries to put him in place. And he's like, hey, I don't want this job. 
And he's like, well, don't no worry. You don't have to be the CIO. We're going to get a new one. He's like, I don't want that job either. That stands for, it's like career is, career is over. Yeah, career is over. And I'm like, that's so funny. Well, there's, uh, there's also another joke too in the private sector, but it's like you become CEO of a company. The former CEO hands you three envelopes and he says, look, first time you have a problem, open up the first envelope. And the first envelope says, first thing you do is you reorganize or you blame the previous CEO. Then if you have more problems, you open up the second envelope and the second envelope says reorganize. And then he goes, well, what's in the third envelope? He says, prepare three more envelopes, you know, because <laughs> you're going to get fired and the next guys are going to come in. So yeah, I've heard that people do. You know, most CIOs have a career of less than three years, which by the way, is what most police chiefs have. Believe it or not, the average tenure is like 2.8 years. And when I was working down at Justice, the longest, just the CIO, the, the longest DOJ CIO they've ever had is Van Hitch. He actually came out of the private sector into the public sector. And I worked with Van, I actually worked with his daughter too at, at Cisco, but he was there for like eight, nine years. I mean, that's a long time in the federal government to be CIO. Yeah, that sounds like a couple eternities. Hopefully, it looks like he had a couple of years to think about those those three envelopes. So, so okay, so we know S1's amazing. You're the chief security advisor there. Walk us through like, what are the top priorities of a chief security advisor? So, you know, it's really, it's, it's to win the air wards, to win the battle of the hearts and minds. So I go out and I work a lot directly facing the customer with the sales teams, with the marketing teams, and I don't do sales pitches. In fact, I mean, I know a lot of their products, but if you ask me how the, how all of them work, I'd say, that's why we've got sales engineers. And that's why we've got great account executives over here. Let me bring them into you. Cause I'm not here to talk about the tech. And that was one of the decisions. It's really about, all I do is I come in, I say, let me change your point of view about how you think about problems. Let me change your point of view. And so really a lot of this is about, but you know, work when we work and meet directly with them, it's to listen to them. And I ask, because I'm not, I don't have the baggage that a, a account manager has or a, you know, some other executive in the company has, I can ask questions. In fact, one of my favorite questions is to say, you know, how do you get measured? At the end of the year, how do you know, how do you know you've been successful and how does your board, if you're publicly traded, if you have an audit risk committee, how do you know you've been successful? What are your metrics for success? You know, and how do you demonstrate that you've been successful? We implemented a program. Well, I implemented a program too, but what outcomes did you get? You know, did it, what did it achieve? You know, so I think a lot of the struggles have been, how do you really define those good metrics that show I've been successful this year? It's very easy if you're in sales. Because you have a revenue target. It's very simple, right? I and mean, you're the same way too. You're in public sector. You, you're, you might have your goals might be certain things like we got to get this plan or this project implemented or this technology implemented. But but like from our side, when you're doing your own thing, it's like, hey, I've got a re you've got a revenue goal. And it's pretty simple. My expenses are X. My income is Y, right? And as long as Y exceeds X, you know, we're good. When Y drops below X, you know, I've got to, I got to rethink things. So, so for me, it's really about, it's meeting with them a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, but a lot of public presentation. And like the one I currently do right now, the cyberspace of uh, the cold war in cyberspace with Russia, it's really about, I challenge people about the way they think about the problem. So that's really all I want them to do is come in and add value, let them know, Hey, we're bringing in, we, it's, it's, an, it's another touch point. But like when I present on the media, when I present on television or I do radio interviews, I'm not harping products. I'm not, I don't shill. I mean, that's not something I do. I, I'm, I'm not here to sell you Sentinel One. Put your pocketbooks away. All I want to do is have a conversation and see if I can challenge the way you think about the problem, how you think about it now, and will you think about it differently when I'm done? Yeah, I, I, 
I, I love that. Thinking about the problem differently, winning the battle of the hearts and minds. Like, yeah, not having, you, I mean, you're detached. So you can, you can listen, you can ask those questions. Kind of very similar. I, I don't know any of Sentinel One's products. Like I couldn't tell you, <laughs> I couldn't tell you anything about the products except, you know, kind of from a very high level surface. Mm -hmm. But I love interviewing people, love connecting the dots and, and telling the stories. I think how you tell the stories is, is somewhat wrapped around like, you know, how are you measured? Were you effective? Did you hit the outcomes? If you hit, if, if you didn't hit the out, whether you hit the outcomes or you didn't hit, hit the outcomes, there's still a story attached to that, a narrative. And so one um, of my other favorite things to ask, I was just on a call with somebody, what day are we? Yeah. Last week. No, yeah, this is Monday. Holy cow. I forgot what day it is. It was last week on Friday, but I, I was, I was asking him, I said, look, if you were HMFIC, that is a technical term for a head, you know, MF or in charge. If you're the HMFIC, what would you, and you could do anything you want for this next year. What's the, what's the one or two projects you would do? What would you do? You know, and then you'd be surprised with that. I would love to do this. I would love to do that. And then you start, well, then why aren't you doing it? Well, because they think, well, but again, let me be candid. Who knows better? You or some board member who's detached that can only go maybe one, if they're lucky, two questions deep on the issues. You know, why aren't you changing that? So I gave, you know, I, part of this too is giving them strategies for how to do it. One of the folks I talked to out on the recent West Coast trip with the uh, the the West Western team, the Western region team, I was actually talking to one of the guys that said, what you need to do is you need to, who are your one or two, who are the one or two people on that board who are bellwethers as they go, everybody else follows them on a particular issue. Who are your champions? Have you identified them? Have you done like basic board training when you have a new board member come on? Do they get an hour or two hours with you so they understand? You know, my, your goal should be everybody on that board should be able to go two questions deep on what it is you're doing. You don't want them to be experts. I don't want them spending their time saying this is how you configure a router and a switch and a gateway. Oh, my. No, you don't want them doing that kind of stuff. But, you know, do they understand the metrics? Do they understand the risk? If we don't have, if we're not, what's our patching cadence? And what's the risk if we're not patching on a regular? How do we respond when a, a critical CVE comes out? You know, ask uh, Equifax that question. When uh, the Struts database that was actually discovered originally by Cisco Talon, then it was published, and they failed to take action on that. And one of the biggest breaches of personal information in history. And I say, I've talked with the people at Equifax. They know it. They've gotten religion. But. Getting religion after the event is too late. You know, yep. uh, or this, the, the mayor of the city of Atlanta says, well, look, we never took cybersecurity seriously. But after our ransomware attack, we take it seriously. And I'm like, folks, you can spend a dollar now to solve the problem or you can spend $10 later. When I testified before Congress on healthcare.gov, the security and privacy of healthcare.gov testified twice. One of the statements that has stuck with me, a member of Congress said, look, the U.S. government never finds enough time and money to do it right. But we always seem to find the time and money to do it over. And when you do it over. It's always, I, I, IBM did this study. If it costs you a dollar to fix a problem before the product or solution is released, it will on the, on the average cost you a hundred dollars to fix, or fix it after it's released. So, but, but we're in this rush to get things out. You know, we're in the rush to do stuff. So every, the reason I say that part of my work, bringing it all back around is I, I just get them thinking differently about how do they structure their relationship? Do they report directly to the board? Do they have to go through an intermediary like the CIO? You know, what's your relationship like? How do you change that? How do you change that dynamic, that relationship dynamic with them so that you have some face time with the board so they can hear it straight from you? Look, CIOs are not CISOs, you know, depending on the size, but they have different things. So at the end of the day, the CIO normally has the resources to implement the things that the CISO needs done. 
you know, and so what's that relationship like? So, I mean, there's really a lot of this is just, and the other thing too, it's not cookie cutter. You cannot go to one company and say, well, this, you know, you need to do it this way. Again, it goes back to culture. What's the culture of this company? What makes you different? What makes you unique? Why do you, why do you do things the way you do them? You know? Yeah, that that's when I think about the strategies and that you're helping. I also think about, you know, just in the companies I talk with, I think a lot of folks struggle with how do I prioritize the most important work? And I'm just shocked it happens so much. And, but I think the work that you're doing as far as helping them, a lot of these companies really crystallize around, hey, here's the most important stuff that we need to do. Here are the strategies we can implement. And part of it too, I mean, you even talked about the relationship component. None of that's technical. None of that. No. That's just that's anything technical. It's just if and if that relationship isn't there, for example, with the technology suite and the board, yeah, you're going to have a breakdown and you're going to be paying that $10 or to it fix could the be, problem afterwards. If you're public sector, it could be the relationship between you and the city, the county, yeah. you know, the state, right? It's the same thing, right? Do you have the right kind of relationships? If you're the state CIO, do you have the right, you know, the state CIO doesn't freelance. They do things that are at the agenda of the governor, uh, you know, and so are you in alignment there, you know? So yeah, everybody, everybody, and to me, it all, to me, it really does. It boils down to relationships, right? Do you have the right relationships at the right level? And do you, do you have insights at each level that help you understand the goals, problems, and needs of that person at that level? What is it if somebody at the worker level is trying to accomplish versus somebody at the managerial level versus somebody at the executive level, you know, mid-level versus executive level? Because I can guarantee you what, if, if I have a goal as a CEO, um, I drive that down, that becomes the, the goal at the next level, which generates problems and needs, which generates goals at the next level. So if you, want, if you have good insight at each level, what they're, how they're being measured and what they're doing, you have good insight then to what, what, how it rolls up. And when you, where you find misalignment as to where they're working on X, but they should be working on Y, that's where you want to identify those things early on because it means you don't have good alignment between what the outcomes of the organization are and what the folks that are building this and working on this are doing on a daily basis. If I'm building something in Java and it's supposed to be built in C++, we got a problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love this. I company for me is only two people, me and my wife. We are actually trying to hire someone basically to be kind of like the COO of the company slash executive assistant a little bit right now. So figuring that out as we're kind of crafting our hiring. So I should say we're actively hiring. We're actively going through the process of what the hiring description would look like building the right SOPs and like kind of all that stuff. Um, but I think it's super important is, and we do this, my wife is like figuring out each week does what we're doing match up with the outcomes that we have for the year. So I'm going to give you a month. piece of advice, something I've been doing for the last few years, I think would be great for you. There's two things you ought to look at. Michael Hyatt and his full focus planner. And he's got, a, it's called, you can go to michaelhyatt.com. Yep. I don't know if, are you familiar with that? I am very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 The other thing is because to me, that's the framework, that's the architecture, but the thing that really operationalized things is David Allen's getting things done. Yep. Yep. Those are, are two absolutely fantastic resources. And can be used anywhere, public, private sector, solo, and you know, whatever you do. And to me, that's the biggest thing is I've got to focus on too. I have my goals like in 10 places throughout my house. One of them is getting my book done. Got to get it done by January 31st. Right. But, but yeah, but it's like getting things done. I, I only work on the things each day. 
In fact, it was the guy from Keller Williams. I'm trying to think of the, the guy's name. He wrote the book, oh, The One Thing. Yeah, it was called The One Thing. And basically he has a sign that says, until my one thing is done, my main thing is done, everything else is a distraction. So when people say, I got 10 priorities. No, you don't. You got 10, you got nine distractions and one priority. What's the priority? Priority actually was designed to be a singular word, not plural. So it's kind of like saying, you know, you, you, you can only focus on one thing. People say, well, I can multitask. I, I can show you an exercise where you can disprove anybody. They cannot multitask, period, cannot be done. You got to singularly focus. You got to get in flow. You got to get that thing done. When that thing is done, when your main thing is done, then you find out what's the next thing. So like you're talking about the full focus planner, they use, I, I change it around. They, they talk about their daily big three. I say it's daily big one plus two. When I get my one thing done, then I figure out what my next thing is based on the getting thing done methodology. What do I have the time for, the energy for? Is it the right context? Am I mean, the right place? You know, et cetera. So I just don't put something on there just to have something on there. I use full focus planner and that framework to help me decide what's the next. And GTD then helps me operationalize that whole framework. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I, we, I wasn't planning on diving into this, but this is a great topic. I've, I've, at some point, I might even do like a little series. I think in the, I haven't heard too many folks in the public sector. I, I think I hear a lot of struggle on the priority front. I am a huge David Allen fan, GTD. I, use, I used to use Michael Hyatt's planner. I use kind of a different combination. Dave Ramsey has a, he actually has a piece of software. And then in that piece of software, he has something called a desired future. So I kind of map out the desired future for the mm -hmm. year. I have defining objectives and key results. And then how I bring that in on a daily basis is there's a piece of software called Sensama. And it's kind of the daily planner for busy professionals. And I actually, because I work with so much so many different pieces of software. I manage my GTT system, my GTD system in Todoist because it integrates with Sensama, but also That's Asana. I, yeah. Yeah, I have Todoist as well. And so I will drag in also my email. I will drag in my tasks into Sensama, which I absolutely love. And I, and I think it's like, if you can nail that down where you've got one central repository and you can not drop the ball. I said that as I dropped the coffee mug as I was supposed to buy that before this, but pretty good. Not drop the ball on that. And you can bring your work into one area. It just frees your mind up so See, much. that's the key thing people miss. It's, David Allen has a great statement. He said, your mind is for having ideas, not holding them. Yeah. And in fact, when you were just saying that, see, one of the things I do, one of the things I keep by my desk and I have these all over the house, I have my little notepads like David Allen style. I write it down. I have my inbox over here. I tear it down. It goes into there. I deal with my inbox either daily or, you know, every other day. But I don't, I don't keep anything up here. Why? Because I'm older than you, as you pointed out. You ageist. You age. You're discriminating me based on age. But I don't have to remember it. I put it into a trusted system, and I know very quickly. I used to do. I used a combination of full focus planner, GTD, and Todoist to do the same things. But it doesn't matter what it is. Somebody said one time, "What's the best?" like platform. Is it this? Is it Zoom? What I said, the best platform is the one you can use consistently and you're good at using. It's the one you understand. Is it Teams? Is it Google? Is it Zoom? Doesn't, I don't care. It's what are you good at using that meets your needs? And don't listen to everybody. Well, you have to use this. No, I don't have to do anything. I can choose to do something. But like for me, I found what works for me is a combination of Todoist, GTD, and Full Focus Planner. Yep. Um, but it doesn't matter. Use somebody else's planner. doesn't matter. But I think the key thing is, do you have goals for the year? Do you have a way of visualizing those goals and knowing, and what am I doing today? Is it moving me closer towards my goals or farther away from them? You know, and so it's just, 
But you better have goals, whether you're in public sector, private sector, you need to have those things. And how do you track them? And how do you know you're making progress? And one of the best ways is not, sometimes it's look at, look at the gain, don't look at the gap. Dan Sullivan said that, look at the gain. You might've just been 25% into your goal and you might think, oh, I still got 75% to go. That's a long way as opposed to, look, I've already accomplished 25%. Look what I've done so far. So look at the gain, not the gap. And actually I was just finishing up going in depth on goal setting this morning, Michael, one of Michael Hyatt's courses. And once you get past 50%, the science has shown you actually get more excited about your goal and you accomplish it because now you've kind of crossed that threshold. So yeah, no, that's great. I, I love Michael Hyatt. He's a tremendous resource. A few other kind of, I think, things that, that really helped. David Allen talks about the two-minute rule. So yeah. I found people struggle because I'm like, if it's less than two minutes, just do it. The four Ds, do it. If you can do it in two minutes, do it, delete it, or defer it. Yep, yep. And and so so the two-minute rule two-minute yep. rule is, 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 is absolutely game-changer and huge. And then I think the next thing is understanding people – take a long time to do stuff because they don't understand like, hey, this email you received is not just an email. It's actually a project. And so a really simple email is just, I acknowledge this email. This is actually a project. <laughs> and we need to like break this email up into a bunch of different steps because it's, it's actually a giant project. And so I found if you can have the goals and, and I found too, because going back to the eat what you kill, I have to be highly productive. I don't get paid to sit at my desk. I know that sounds a little harsh, but it's just the truth. And so- Except uh, right now. We're sponsored right by now. 701. <laughs> yes, let's go. Except for right now, exactly. I have to move very quickly, much like yourself. I have to move very, very quickly. So running the business with that kind of general understanding, I, I, I look at each week on a content perspective, what do I want to ship? We're releasing three podcasts and a newsletter every week, and no one's even close to doing that. Now, they're not long form for the audience listening, but still takes a lot of research. We've got a lot of really great guests coming on, so there's a lot of prep time. But now I've got it dialed in. I know, and I just, it's easy. I just, I put my phone away, and people, you know, will, even, even sponsors, hey, I, we're just dropping in, want to give you a phone call. And you're like, well, it's probably not going to work because it's beyond do not disturb. So I can be highly productive. I'm not getting distracted, pinged by a bunch of random Well, we also emails. call it being present. You turn, you turn that yep. off and so you can be present. Yeah, and that's good. Yeah. I'm being present right now. People always ask me, Joe, I texted you at this time. And I, for today... I, well, I'm on a podcast with Morgan. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I will oh, be picking up my phone. It died, so you're absolutely right. You did text me at that time. Was there a question in that? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I just want to re reiterate, Michael Hyatt, David Allen, really great. If those of you who are in the kind of faith space, I've got a great friend. He's got a book. Uh, where is it? I know it's over here. It's over here somewhere. Aha. Aha. Redeeming Your Time. This is a great one by my friend Jordan Rayner, Seven Biblical Principles for Being Purposeful, Present, and Wildly Productive. Definitely check out Jordan Rayner. He basically takes a lot of the GTD methodology and kind of integrates it that way. But, you know, however you're going to do it, you need a system. It's got to be repeatable and you got to be able to integrate both the goals. And I love what you said about Michael Hyatt's that stat about if you get 50% there, you're more likely to complete it. I've, I've, I've run a marathon a couple of times. And yeah, when you get to 50%, let me tell you, <laughs> you're not giving up at that point. Well, so. and the other thing too is, you know, I, I don't run marathons. I did some triathlon related stuff, but I'm not a good runner. I can't, I just, 
not my strength, but I can bike and swim. But, but it's even then with the guys who run it, you hit the wall, right? What do you do when you hit the wall? Even like on a long ride, 112 miles, you know, that's a long ride. What do you do when you hit the wall and you got to be able to, you got to be able to just reach within, find that mental fortitude. And I'll tell you what, one of the great podcasts we did too, with a guy named Kevin Holland, Kevin is the only publicly acknowledged member of both DevGrew, SEAL Team 6, and the Army Special Mission Unit Delta, which everybody calls Delta, cannot be publicly acknowledged, but it's a special mission unit. But that was the guy that pulled Saddam Hussein out of the spidey hole. So he was the operator that did that. When you go through and realize the mental toughness you have to do to get through BUDS or Delta, I mean, it's like just listening to what they did and what they go through. I listen to that and I go... Oh man, that's like, it's like me complaining about the fact I have a little hangnail. I don't have anything near that tough, you know? So a lot of it too is about putting it in perspective. And I think, again, time to kind of close off on that. It doesn't matter what you do. As long as you do something, you do it consistently, have it repeatable. The best thing in the world is to get everything out of your head into a trusted system so that you can do exactly what you think. I, I challenge people. In fact, when I took over a team, had a lot of people, they judge their value by how full their calendar was. And I said, I judge your value by how clear your calendar is. Because let me ask you, you've got a week booked here with no time. When do you think about the problem? When do you sit back and do nothing but stare into space and think about the problem? Where, where is the time you think critically about the problems we're trying to solve? And they've shown this at Google, at 3M and other places. You got to have not, I don't want to say goof off time, but you have to, when you're staring off into space and wasting time, you're actually thinking about stuff. By the way, the biggest breakthroughs that came through on DNA were when the two scientists took their afternoon walks, they'd get out of the office and they'd walk together and they'd get away from their environment. That's how they got the breakthroughs in DNA sequencing. Yeah. Do, do you find... I um, we're going to jump around a, a little bit, but one of the things how I write podcast questions, and I'm, I'm actually since you're a pro, I would love to hear a little bit of insight from you. How I write questions is I actually very rarely write the rough drafts at my desk. I actually go on walks, and as I'm listening to either content or exploring, I will come up with questions that way. Probably the best questions I come up with typically are on walks. Last night I was I was writing some additional stuff. I was not walking in the middle of the night, but here in California, because it's been raining, but when it's not, I love going on walks to think about questions. And and I use a couple apps, like there's one called air.io. So when I'm listening, I listen to a couple episodes of, of Morgan's content and I can highlight the audio and then comment, hey, really like this, great insight over here, come back to this. And then that actually gets hooked up to this little app I use called readwise.io. It's a little niche app that kind of hooks in all this stuff. And then that's hooked up to Evernote. And then that information all gets transferred in. So when I go to listen, when I want to go back and look at it, maybe Morgan's got an episode that that I was listening to, I'll go back and see all of the time stamped plus my notes. And then I will go maybe write a summary of like, hey, you know, I really like this. And I'll just write the questions then. Then when I sit down at my desk, I collect all the information and then I put it in. But I would love to know, how, how do you write podcast questions? How do you think about the research process? Like, what does that look like for you? I'm going to disappoint you. I used to do a lot of that up front, but with the type <laughs> of guests we have, like when I, when I had Dave Reichert on the investigator for the Green River Killers, me and Murph, I had like probably 21 pages of notes, but that's because I researched, this was an important case. I researched a lot of it. But, but a lot of what I've transitioned to now is, I, I mean, I just use my experience as an interviewer. I mean, it's look, we, we basically break it into four things. Tell us how you got started. Cosa Nostra. How, how did you get started in this 
what we call thing of ours, right? So I walk them through how you get started. And I can tell when somebody's holding back. You'll hear me on a lot of podcasts go, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't get to gloss over like that. You go, yeah, then when I got out of the Army, oh, no, 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 let's roll back and talk about when you were in the Army. You know, so, but we have a standard thing we do, which is how did you get started? Let's set context for the event we're going to talk about. Let's talk about the event. Then let's talk about what you're doing now. And so naturally, now we, we had division of responsibilities. Murph, if there's a book, Murph usually reads the book because I'm producing the episodes and I'm doing the editing. So, you know, there's only so much time. So we do a division of labor, but I kind of drive the interview. Well, why? Because that's what I did for a living. I mean, I interviewed people. And so a lot of it is like, I mean, just a few things you've told me, I would drill down on. I would dive, I would dive in on. I'd find out a little bit more here, but you know, it's always find out you'd start up. You always make connections. Where'd you get started? So where'd you, where'd you go to school at? You know, where, yeah. you know, and then how did you get started? And same questions to you is the same. How, what led you into this thing of ours, right? Law enforcement, you know, were you drunk one night standing in front of a police station decided, Hey, I'd rather be on that <laughs> side than this side. I mean, what, you know, so we, we would find out, but you'd, you'd be surprised, uh, especially we got so many great stories on people's first day of work. You know, it's like, well, what was your first day of work like? You know, what was your first day in the work? We talk about their academy. So I don't, I don't write as many questions. What I do is Murph, like I said, he'll, we have just a general description. Here's the thing we're going to talk about. I read a few articles on it, but then in my head, cause I've done this kind of stuff before. It's like, now I did a lot more research on Operation Relentless, the the operation to get Victor Boot. I did like research on the Green River Killer, but we've had people on that were, I don't do any research. Murph's done a little bit of that. I get the synopsis, but our, I drive it and I, I take them down the paths because I've done this before, right? You've interviewed people. So it's like, why did you, you know, so the, my question, big question is why? Why did you do it that way? You know, and then you get, well, I went because of this. Well, you know, et cetera. So I don't write as many questions anymore. I mean, I don't do, Murph does a lot more prep on the front end because I do a lot of the work on the back end because I have to produce everything and edit everything and publish it, et, et cetera. So it's a division of labor because guess what? There's only so many hours in a day, you know? I used to joke too, we only work half days now. The first 12 hours or the last 12 hours you get to pick, but you know, that's the way it is when you're doing your own thing, right? Yeah, hundred yeah, hundred percent. My wife is fantastic. She she jumps in and she helps she helps quite a bit and, and then we're drafting SOPs right now because we want to plug some some additional folks folks in or folk in to to help us kind of streamline the whole process. And yeah, it's there <laughs> twelve twelve hours. You want the first I think sometimes I've got I get the first and, and second half of the second piece of it too, but that's how it goes sometimes. So I did, I, before we jump on, I did want to mention there's a great video for those on, on kind of that goal setting front that I would highly recommend. I'll, I'll drop in the, in the show notes, but there's one, how Google sets goals, OKRs from their startup lab workshop. It's Objectives and key results. Yep. Yep. Objectives and key results. Yeah. A lot of really great stuff there. They've got a, Google came out with a bunch of great research. And actually around. there's a site for OKRs. I used to subscribe to their new letter. So there's a whole site around OKRs and how you set them. And I went to some of that training on that. So it's, it's really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Su super important. Jumping back. So, so on the game of crimes podcast, I, I loved, I, I love this, this, this question, you know, with so much background, how do you choose the stories that you're able to tell? Like, is Hollywood's rendition of events, and you've kind of hinted to it, but is Hollywood's rendition of events inspiration for you and Murph to break down what really happened? Are you guys sitting at a bar like, oh, we're going to break this down. They totally got this wrong. Like, what's, what does that process look like? Well, our secret sauce is we talk to the people who are actually involved. So we're, it's first person. It's who was there, who put the handcuffs on, who investigated the case. And I will tell you, we did our first kickoff episode was me interviewing Steve and Javier Pena, JP, on 
the real DEA narcos talking about the real DEA narcos. And then we did a 12 part series on Patreon with him. And we're just now concluding a 15 part series with the real DEA narcos Cali edition, Chris Feistel, Dave Mitchell, Mitchell, who brought down the gentleman of the Cali cartel. And would you, would you find out, for example, with Hollywood, it's, it's one third, one third, one third, one third of it is factual. One third of it they've taken liberties with it's factual information, but they make it occur at different times. Like in narcos, the Avianca bombing, that actually happened, but Murph was not in country when the Avianca bombing happened. That happened before he got there. And then one third of it is totally BS. They make it up. It's like, I can guarantee you, and I know Murph and JP never threw anybody out of the helicopter. I mean, I joke with him about that, but they never threw anybody about the helicopter. By the way, neither Murph or JP smoked, and both Pedro and Boyd Holbrook in the series smoked. Steve and JP never argued with each other, but they had to have conflict. So Hollywood you know, does their thing. And the same thing, the Calais investigation, season three of Narcos, th that was condensed down far shorter than what it actually was. But a lot of the information in there is correct. I love that. And I, I was kind of curious, how, how did you and Murph meet? Did the tagline, if you were to go to the Game of Crimes podcast.com and you look up kind of the about section, you kind of are listed as, a, as, as the real cop and he's the former Fed dot 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 DEA. Did you guys walk into a bar? Like, hey, how did that work out? How did you guys meet and connect? And well, how did it all come together? Unbeknownst to us, we had crossed paths several times. In fact, when I was working in Colombia, I crossed paths with Javier and I didn't realize it. We were both working out of the embassy, and he was back for his second tour of Colombia. And uh, but Steve was actually a neighbor of mine, just about a mile away. And we we kept we knew of each other, but finally I took a mutual friend to say, "Hey, you guys ought to get together." And that's what we did. We went out and had coffee, and then realized, that, man, we cross paths at DOJ or at other places, you know, things like that. And so it was like, hey, so that's that's kind of how it started. But but he he lived. I mean, I could I could drive to his house in less than five minutes. That's how close we were. I love that. Okay, so for the audience, last time, maybe, head to gameofcrimespodcast.com to check out what evil is coming. Also, as I mentioned, the swag's pretty sweet. I don't have a swag shop. You got to help me out. I, I got to get one. People have been asking. I've got to figure that out. People want the swag shop. They want the tech tables. Someone yeah. told me I want a beanie. I need a, I, how do I get these jackets? So I got to get my swag shop going. I like that you guys have that. You got the coffee mugs. Love that. Also, you got to head over to Apple Podcasts, drop some five star and Spotify. I know and Spotify, Apple and Spotify, drop some five stars for uh, someone told me, Joe, you can't tell people to give five stars. I can't. Who give says you can't? Who yeah, says I, that? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. And the public my gosh, show you've earned it. When you when you look at the I can guarantee you if you put in. If I put in half the effort I know that you're putting in, you deserve five stars because you know what? Most podcasts don't make it past seven to ten episodes. They've 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 filter off. And there are one point three to one point five million podcasts out there right now. So for the fact is that you're continuing to put out you should get five stars. Hey, look, you want people to give you five stars, but you know, it's like, hey, look, whatever you do, don't go give somebody a one star just because you're being a I won't, I will, you'll bleep it out, but I won't say the word, but it'll be like beeping, you know, beeping head. You know, we've had a couple of those. I don't like cops. All cops lie. So therefore I'm giving you one stars. Did you even listen to the podcast? <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Actually, Spotify has got a great, if you try and add five stars or any stars, you try to just add any type of rating, 
they don't let you until you've listened to a couple episodes or a couple minutes or I don't know how it works, but which yeah, I you think just is can't really do great. a drive. You can't do a drive by rating. You actually have yep. to participate. Yep. Yeah. I love that. All right. Oh, don't forget your show. Give your show five stars too. You oh, deserve yeah. it. Oh yeah. And the public sector show by tech tables, formerly tech tables, but now the public sector show by tech tables and pretty soon on Apple Podcasts, short plug, you will see Tech Tables Network as a channel because we're dropping a couple of different podcasts. So I'm prepping right now. The CEO show is a big one. I'm very excited to drop that with some CEO interviews that I have. I also have another one called The Digital Show. I also have another one in the public sector called The Higher Ed Show. So we're building out this network. I'm even going to branch out. I got a guy I've been talking to. I like him a lot. We're going to co-host a new show. Very excited about that in the cybersecurity space in Texas. That's all I'm going to hint to. So kind of super niche, but we I spoke on the stage at the Texas Military Department. And this guy had a lot of really great energy. And so we're going to explore down that route and see where that goes and so fun times but that's going to wrap up part one we covered a lot of really great stuff now part two i'm very excited about is cyberspace a history the coming cyberspace cold war with russia morgan so you give a presentation to clients you know some keynotes about the coming cyberspace cold war with russia which is absolutely fantastic and I, we, my wife and i actually were diving into that presentation and you know i was really struggling with would there be specific questions I, I should pull out? But then I said, you know what? He's probably got this mastered. Let's just let you have a run at it. And, and we will overlay the photos from the slide deck that you provided if you're up for it. And I think that history will lay the foundation for part three, which is going to be cybersecurity threats coming up in 2023. So I, I think let's lay the foundation with, with the Cold War with Russia, and then we will jump into part three of the cybersecurity threats coming up in 2023. Yeah, I mean, this morphed out of, a, like I said, a, a tabletop exercise, basically as a war game exercise. How would you invade Ukraine? Because we all knew it was going to happen at some point. So I actually gave the first one in 2013. I went back and looked at my first presentation. It was called Cyber Strike Warfare in the Fifth Domain, how Russia will invade Ukraine basically without firing a shot. Now, they didn't, fu they fired a shot, but but it was, but basically we looked at the tactics they were going to use, how they were going to infiltrate things, what things they were going to go after. And true to form, one of the big things I said in that and big lessons out of that, if you want to bring a nation to its knees, you have to go after two things, power and water. And what is Russia going after in Ukraine right now? Power, power and water, everything from the nuclear plants to the power generation stations, you know, public utilities and stuff like that. Why? Because if you can remove electricity and water, seriously, you, you create a lot of civil issues, a lot of unrest, things that they have to deal with. So, so, but that morphed. So, and then it morphed into then when the invasion happened, then it's like, okay, need to transition. Now you can do this with any of the top tier adversaries or transnational crime groups, criminal groups. But I picked Russia because it's topical. They're in the news right now. So now the current one's called cyberspace, you know, the coming cyberspace cold war with Russia because we had a previous cold war. But there's, but the reason I say it's going to move to that because my belief is we'll never have outright 
outright conflict. We'll never have outright war in cyberspace with Russia because it doesn't meet either one of our national security needs and interests. It, it would only cause a lot of problems. But I start off by simply saying the problem isn't the problem. The problem isn't the way you think about the problem. The only thing that matters is the way your adversary thinks about the problem. You can say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Why did they do it that way? Because we were defending against you coming in the door and you came in the window instead. Nobody cares what you think, Skippy. You know, they don't. What they actually are looking for is they exploit the flaws in your thinking. And this is where I t this is where I challenge people do. So I'm giving you a little bit of insight here. But where does everybody's heard the phrase think outside the box? And I say, well, what does that mean? And second of all, where does it come from? I can tell you only one person in all of the presentations I've done, only one person has known where it's come from. And it actually comes from Gestalt psychiatry. And they did an exercise on all of these different dots that you had to connect. But one of them was called the three dots exercise. And it was three rows of three dots. Connect all nine dots, they, you know, in the shape of a box. Connect all nine dots with four straight lines. Don't take your pen off the paper. And you would get all these. You can't do it. Why? Because you stop here. You can't go here. I gave you the answer five times. Think outside the box. So the kid, the people who solve this are kids. They go up and outside the box, come down through a couple other dots, come over and then back up. There's two places when you solve that, that you're thinking outside the box. You're going outside the box to solve the problem. Now, we have to act within the box because that's our legal framework, rules, regulations, responsibilities, you know, all that good stuff. But if you want to defeat an adversary, that's why the CIA, that's why the NSA, that's why these other people, where their stock and trade is, is thinking about how can we exploit the way you think about the problem. Well, that's what the Russians do. They exploit the way we think about the problem. And it goes back into their history of Russian intelligence. They have been doing this game. People wonder why in 2016, Russia, at least with Facebook, there's a report that's come out. They weren't so effective with Twitter, but with Facebook, they were fairly effective. Why? Because it was outmatched. You've got Facebook, who was only a public company for six years by that point. They went public in 2010, going against a country who for 100 years has had an intelligence organization, the VCheka, the NKVD, the KGB, which the biggest tactical error they made was trying to overthrow Gorbachev. And then they became the FSB and SVR. Still, you have the GRU. But I mean, but it's, it goes back into the way they think about the problem. So, I mean, that's kind of, you know, that that's kind of how I start to lay it out. And then we talk about the different attacks you know, people think that, hey, oh, gosh, this whole, you know, the whole reason this war started is because, you know, Ukraine wanted to join NATO. You know, that that's always been a contention. But where it really started, and this is why Russia is very, what's key to them are dates in history, events that happen. And so for them, the reason the black energy attack, the first use of black energy against, you know, the Zaporizhia hydroelectric plant, the reason it occurred on December 23rd, 2015, is because exactly one year earlier, December 23rd, 2014, Ukrainian parliament voted 303 to 8 to change their status from a non-aligned nation to an aligned nation to join which organization? NATO. This has been going on a lot longer than just what's happened the last year. In fact, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine goes back over 200 years, if not even more. So this is nothing new. This was not the first attack. In fact, the first attack against the Zaporizhia hydroelectric plant wasn't 2015. It was 1941 when Hitler, Operation Barbarossa, was invading Russia by way of Ukraine, what did Stalin and his NKVD do? They blew up the Zaporizhia hydroelectric plant, the same one they attacked in 2015. What people don't realize is back in 1941, it killed over 100,000 Ukrainians. So when I say they take the long view of history, here's Russia attacking the same dam in 2015 that they attacked in 1941. 
Do you think they have a long view of history? They absolutely do. So do not look at Russia today going, well, they're getting their butts kicked. We're sending over tanks. We're beating them in all these different places. Hey, do you know how long they were getting their ass kicked by Hitler before they got their act together and then actually turned the tide and started building more tanks and airplanes? You know, three or four years, you know, three years they were getting, losing a lot of people. The siege of uh, Stalingrad, you know, Leningrad, you know, let's look at how many, how many hundreds of thousands of soldiers lost their life, but they turned the tide. So, in fact, one of there's there's always quotes from Stalin, but there's one quote too that is very applicable to the way they look at it too. He, you know, we talk about you know is it quality versus quantity, and he says, look, qual- quantity or or quantity or quality has or qu- quantity. I'm sorry, has a quality all its own. If you can throw enough stuff at it, it has its own quality. So you can say, I'd rather have good soldiers versus bad soldiers. But if I can throw enough bad soldiers at it, I can still overwhelm you, you know? So the gate, you know, you can, you can look at all of the different lessons from history, but anyway, that's kind of the way I looked at it. You have to take a historical view because many of their tactics, see the tools may change, but tactics remain the same influence operations, active measures. All of those things are things they were doing 50, 60 years ago. By the way, here's a shock to people. We were doing the same thing. The CIA spent a million dollars a year on spoiling operations in South America to affect elections. Why? Because what did we not want in South America? Communism. We still don't want it today. And look at look at what's going on in Venezuela, places like that, what's going on in Cuba, right? So these are things that are still applicable today. So let me stop there, take a breath and see what you got to say. Yeah, that that was that was absolutely fantastic. I, I, I think one thing in particular, and you you actually did talk about it was Russians taking the long view of of history. Could you maybe just go a little bit deeper on on that? You 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 mentioned you mentioned that and actually some fantastic history with Hitler going through Ukraine, but could you maybe go deeper with that in regards with cyber warfare? I sure. think would be would be pretty cool. So I, I I do that to take you back just a little bit and say if you look at where actually for a long time the majority of grandmasters and chess came from. It was Russia, and then I think it was Iran, believe it or not. It's the way they think about the problem. When you play chess, Gary Kasparov, you know, you're thinking of him playing Big Blue. You've got to think you're, – you're thinking 50, 60, 70 steps ahead. He, he literally, he was thinking that far ahead trying to play Big Blue, and, you know, and so they take the long view of history. In other words, they don't look at – we look at it. Our elections are driven by, oh, my God, look at the economy. Look what's happening today, one, one party versus this party. Elections are really driven by what's topical, what's happening – What's the pain f- people are feeling today? But if you look at the way Russia moved out of the, the the Central Committee, the way they were doing, Gorbachev was the last you know full head of the Soviet Union, the chairman, and then they quote got a premier and a president. Well, look, Putin's basically president for life until he dies, which I think will be in short order here because either he's going to get overthrown or he's going to die from the affliction. Of the Ukrainian intelligence says he's got cancer and I think Parkinson's. So he, his time is short. In fact, I just saw a story today suggesting that he may retire in 2023. Now, he's either going to die in 2023 or get overthrown. You, look, here, the chairman, heads of the KGB and stuff, nobody retires over there. You know, they die. Yeah. There is no retirement plan in Soviet, the old Soviet Russia or even current Russia. So, but when I say they take the long view of history, they don't care what happens today. They don't care what happens tomorrow. They're planning chess moves. You might take my pawn today and my knight tomorrow, but I'm looking at taking your queen, you know, in 60 moves and I'm looking at taking your and checkmate in 61 moves. I mean, they're thinking that far ahead. If you compare their politics to our politics, 
a little bit different, but the way they think about it is we're worried about, oh, you took my pawn. Oh, my God, we have to have a revolt. We need to go whatever. No. To them, it's like, okay, you took my pawn. Okay. It's, that's the reality. They don't care about the pawn. Quantity has a quality all its own. They're willing to sacrifice a lot of pawns. Why? Because their ultimate objective is to get to your queen and then get to your king. So for them, it's really it's, it's a long-term chess game, and they don't look at the outcome today. They're thinking of an outcome a decade from now, two decades from now. That's, that's, that's a lot of what they're looking at. Let me I, tie it real quick back into yeah. cyber, cybersecurity. So what they're thinking about is people look at it and they go, oh, they didn't use all of their – we thought there's going to drop all of these cyber weapons on Ukraine and blow up everything you know, from a cyber standpoint. Well, they started doing that to begin with because they released some things called acid rain, which affected routers and modems that got into the routers and modems for the wind turbines for Germany. It jumped containment. So one of the things they realized is when – and that happened before the deputy secretary of NATO came out and said, hey, look – Cyber is an operational domain. We consider a massive attack on one a massive as an attack on all Article 5. Everybody now switched from being an expert on COVID to be an expert on Article 5, which, by the way, its real name is the Washington Treaty. That's how it was originally was done. But uh, but so they looked – but what Russia realized is, hey, we've got to put the safeties on it. Not Petya, the worst ransomware, the most damaging cyber attack in history – was actually designed only to attack Ukraine, a supply chain attack against a, an accounting software they called ME Doc, and it jumped and it hit Maersk and it hit other people. So one of the things they started doing is they started putting full safeties on. If you watch the movie Hunt for Red October, when he took the safeties off, you idiot, you've killed us because the torpedo came back around and blew them up. <laughs> That's what they were concerned about. So yeah. so from a, so what they looked at is they look, we're going to play the long game. We won't get everything we want. We got to put safeties on. So a lot of these weapons. Cyber attacks kind of landed with duds. Why? Because they put such constraints on them. They did not want them jumping containment. Why? Because they've got the long view of history. You know, he who fights and runs away shall live to fight another day. I mean, you survive the battle to win the war. They're, they're losing a lot of battles, but they're interested in winning the war. So what they will continue to do is what they've always done from a cybersecurity standpoint, as well as a military standpoint. They excel in the gray areas, the fringe areas of policy. And in cyberspace, that will be low-intensity conflict, whether it's in the actual real world or in the cyber world, they will continue to do what's called low-intensity conflict and stay right below the threshold of a full response, but be, continue to use proxies like ransomware gangs, dark side ransomware group out of Russia. They will continue to use them as proxies for Russian policy and continue to use them. And they will – if it's dark, it'll be dark side today. It'll be another group tomorrow. It'll be another group five years from now. But they will they, – they, they're, they're looking at the war. They're not they're, – they realize they're going to lose battles. You know how many battles they lost before they won World War II? Almost every single one. And the Battle of Curse came along, big tank battle. So if you go back and look at the lessons from history, especially World War II and the Cold War, you will see that informing a lot of what they're doing today. Okay, so I got a, I, I've got a couple of questions. One right off the bat is what are some of your favorite books around this topic? Specifically, I'm thinking long-term perspective within – military history, World War II to date today. Do you, do you have any books that you're like, hey, I love this book? I'd have to I'd have to go up on my shelf and look at it, but I pulled a lot of ones like Operation Market Garden. When they when the when the phrase a bridge too far, people say, no, that's a bridge too far. That actually comes from Operation Market Garden. I think the bridge at Remagen. It was just they overextended their abilities after so they landed on d-day montgomery's idea was hey let me run this operation operation market garden we'll do a final punch to the nazis and well it didn't work out that way in fact we lost that engagement not i would say decisively but significantly 
But, you know, so, I mean, I look at things like that in terms of long-term thinking. We did, I don't think we thought through the problem. And it basically was Eisenhower giving Montgomery something. He's got to give him something the same way that they did with the Russians to get to Berlin. Because German Germany killed a lot of Russians, and so Stalin was pretty mad. He wanted something for it. You had to give the British something. You had to give the you, the Russians something. So this was part of what they gave to the UK and to Montgomery was to you know do Market Garden. And so I, I think, but a good a good friend of mine writes a weekly email, and he was a colonel retired from the Air Force. But basically, he looks at the lessons of history, especially from World War II or the Korean War, and we look at what we're doing now. So I mean, you can go back to the books called Washington Spies. Uh, the re- the original gang that Washington had. You can go back and look at the six frigates, Thomas Jefferson talking about the need to create a modern Navy. Why? Because of the pirates off the Barbary Coast. <laughs> it was because of piracy that we created the first Navy. So you can, you can go back and, and almost any of these things. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of some good books. I mean, there's tons of good books on, I, I don't, those I don't read as regular as I read some other things because of the the stuff I'm writing, the thriller novels. So I tend to read a lot more of those, but I, I will tell you, it's like anything else. You can go back and read the biographies of former directors of central intelligence, of people who operated in the intelligence community, even special operators, people who are Green Berets, special forces, or, you know, special operations, you know, about their thinking about how they did stuff. So I think there's a ton of stuff out there. I don't think there's one book that encapsulates every well, but I will tell you, I think the one thing you have to read is The Art of War by Sun Tzu. His tactics from there If you look at the Army Field Manual to today, you will see a lot of Sun Tzu in that. So if I'm serious, people think, oh, that's it's so you know it's so uh, typical. Say, oh man, that's go read Sun Tzu. That's what you expect everybody to say. But I'm telling you, read Sun Tzu with an appreciation for what you can learn from that to apply to today about how we're thinking about problems. You know, never divide your forces in half. Attack where you're least expected. You know, why do you not divide your forces in half? Because then it's easier to attack. If you're a smaller force, you have to concentrate your forces, you know, so that goes to cybersecurity. There's a, the art of war, you know, in cybersecurity, it's the same thing. You can defend anything. You just can't defend everything. What are you going to defend and what are you going to defend it with and at what cost? Yeah. Who, who is the friend that writes the weekly email? His name is Jeffrey, former former Air Force Colonel. I'll forward you one of his emails. You can see it, and because he write he he puts a very well thought out PDF that goes with it, and links to things, and the thinking from Brigadier Generals on the invasion. You know, even our thinking around invading D Day, the invasion of D Day. You know what we would do there. So much thinking back then. No, that's great. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. And I was just reaching down to grab my copy of the Art, the Art of, of war. war. Yeah, the Art of War. Jeffrey Decker. Jeffrey Decker. Okay. I got Jeffrey Decker down. Do you have a favorite part in the art of war? I, 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 this book is so good. No, I mean, it's, it's like saying, who's your favorite kid? I think (laughs) all, all of them are, all of them are. I think there's, in fact, I'm going to send this to you right now. Let me see here. There he goes. I just sent it to you through the magic of Al Gore's amazing internet. I've just sent you his latest one. And, uh, but no, I mean, I, I, but I think one of the things is, I think you have to lurk, look at each lesson and say, how does that apply to me today? Or does it, not everything has to apply to you, but how does it apply to me today? In other words, if you've got a small team, you can't, if you, you know, if, if you, if you divide your team too much, you get little accomplished, right? So the question you have to ask is, do you want to go an inch wide or a mile deep? You know, and if you go an inch wide, I'm sorry, it's, that's window dressing. Will will some things suffer? Yeah, but can I make progress on can I make progress on some big foundational things that will set the progress to where then it becomes less intense as I do later? But right now, if you're trying to that's the thing. If you're trying to if you're trying to multitask, and I'm telling you, you cannot multitask. 
it's fiction. It's scientifically proven. The brain cannot multitask. People go, well, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. That's not multitasking. What we're talking about is the ability to do two separate actions, going context switching all the time and trying to get you. You're saying that you can get two things faster done than you can if you do two things serially as opposed to sequentially. Can't be done. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. You cannot multitask, not possible. And you never achieve any form of deep work that's required to really work on hard problems or creative output, anything and like that. And there's another great book right there, Deep Work. Yep, yep, by Cal Newport, yeah. Cal yeah, Newport, yeah. he's got a couple books out there, right? You know, and it's like, and you've got Simon Sinek, you know, yep. uh, you know great, I'll tell you, if you want to read a great book about leadership, Leaders Eat Last, I think that's a great book there too. Malcolm Gladwell, you know, some of his books too, you know, it's like, I was going to think of what's the one, oh gosh, I'll, I'll think of the name here in a second. You know, that's the problem when you get to thinking about all these books, you think, you know, Blink, I'm sorry, Blink. Yes, Great book about trusting your instincts and knowing that there's something wrong there. It's the, it, you'd be surprised at the ability for humans to look at something and go, I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to call an audible off the bookshelf real quick. So we've got The Art of War, really great, highly recommend. We've got Simon Sinek. We've got Start With Why. Yep. Find your why. We've got the Infinite Game, which is really also Patrick Lincioni's got a really great stuff. He's got a great book out called The Advantage. I'm currently going through this one. Why organizational health trumps everything in life or else in business. And that one's really, really great. Yeah. John Maxwell's got a lot of really great yep. leadership books. Let's go Atomic Habits Habits by James Clear is really great. By Jocko. I am a Jocko fan. Yeah. Extreme ownership, how how extreme ownership, how Navy SEALs lead and win. Yeah. Him and Leif Babbitt, they, yeah, they wrote that first book together. But some good stuff in there, though, too. Yeah, it's some good leadership stuff. But I'll tell you, you'll, when you read that newsletter I sent you from Jeffrey Decker, you'll, you'll be impressed with that, too. So, Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I actually interviewed this guy. His name is J.P. Donnell. He was the lead sniper for Jocko when they went through the Battle of Ramadi. Ramadi. Mm. Uh, yeah, and it, it, was a fat, it was a great episode. I actually met J.P. in person at a Echelon Front event. It was great to connect with him and... He was willing to come on the podcast, so that was a that was an awesome episode. So we're gonna kick off part three: cybersecurity threats coming up in 2023. Very excited about this. So Morgan, on our podcast intro call, you had mentioned that you had wanted to talk about cybersecurity threats coming up. I'd love to hear just from, and you mentioned a couple of the, a couple of the big terms. I don't know if they're buzzwords yet. Maybe AI is a little is definitely in there, but can you maybe talk about the implications? Uh, for deepfake, AI, chat, GTB in 2023? You know, one of the things that, I tell you, I don't, I don't want to say what scares, what keeps you, I don't know, what keeps me up at night, indigestion, I don't know, sleep on my side, my cats. I don't do, that's the other thing. I don't ask questions like that. It's just what keeps you up at night, you know? Neither do I. <laughs> I don't ask, yeah. not, Hey, you know, my big thing is what are your big projects for this year and how do you get measured? How at the end of the year do you know if you've been successful? But anyway, so one of the things one of the things that I'm concerned about with deep fakes, and actually I saw two articles that inform that. One is I just saw a headline that says it, like in the next couple years, AI will generate ninety percent of all online content. So you start thinking about we're gonna be consuming things written by something that is non human, and I know a lot of that goes on right now. But the other thing that caught my attention was an article that came out a few days ago. Microsoft now has 
AI that can listen to three seconds of your voice and impersonate you to a T. And so you start thinking about now, now it's, it's one of those things. Well, it's not, it's not like a robot. It's not rolled out yet. Folks, nothing ever works that way. I mean, you'd think the first electric vehicle that Elon Musk had was perfect and rolled out, you know, no, you go through a lot of challenges. The version one, Version point oh, you know, point five, point nine. Anything early is never where you want it to be. But the thing is, you look at where again. What's the long view? Where is it going? So I'm starting to think, what could happen if I could use deep fake video, which they they're getting much better at that. Where you can now, I can take video of you, Joe, combine it now with the deep fake algorithm for voice that Microsoft has, and now I can in real time take a video of you like what we're looking at right now and make you say or do things that you didn't do. And now the question becomes, it's not prove that I did it. Now you, the burden is on you to prove that you didn't say that. Suppose you said something very inflammatory, you know, like, I don't know, like the Buccaneers are going to take it all this year, you know, and win the Super Bowl, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, or about how CISOs should, you know, should CIOs should report to CISOs, not the other way around. Suppose you said something radical like that, but I've got you on video. Now, how do you go about proving that you didn't say that? So it goes back into something I talked about one time. The, the, the thing about deep fakes is not eventually discovering that they're deep fakes. The problem with deep fakes is getting so good is that the lie is allowed to propagate long enough that the damage is done. So by the time you get ready to do it, it's already embedded into the consciousness, into the psyche of people that Joe Tosti said that, you know, this and Joe Tosti said that or Morgan Wright said this. How do you how do you unring that bell once it's done? So, I mean, I think some of the threats are going to be from something like that. And it does look, it's not going to be. Well, they're not they can't you can't do that to a thousand or a million people. I don't need to. What if I could do it to five people and get in and influence money policy or release secrets, you know, or do something else. I mean, you see, that's the other thing too, is you think you got to get to everybody. You don't, you only got to get to the right few that everybody else follows, right? That, that they go along the line. So, so, I mean, those, those are some things I look at just from an AI standpoint. I also look at, it goes back to the thinking standpoint and this gets into cybersecurity. So are you familiar with the lapsus gang, Joe? I am not. Lapsus. So they were responsible for some of the biggest breaches last year, like Samsung and NVIDIA, and they just made some arrests on the gang. And these companies are not insignificant. I've met with one of these companies, the, the smart people. They spend money on cybersecurity. Do you want to know what the age of the ringleader of Lapsus was when they arrested him in the UK? Do you know how old the ringleader was of this gang? I'm, I'm going to guess sub 25 years old. 16 years old. 16 years old, and he is out thinking and out doing seasoned, trained cybersecurity professionals that have millions of dollars behind them. And part of it, you think, is it technical? Some of it is. Some of it was as simple as posting on board saying, hey, we're looking for vulnerabilities. We're looking for VPN access. They were buying their way in. Sometimes you don't have to be smarter than the keyboard. You just got to be smarter than the person behind the keyboard. We used to call it PEBCAC. P-E-B-K-A-C, problem exists between keyboard and chair. You know, that's what you're attacking. Again, it's going after the people. I don't need to be the greatest coder. I can get into everything I need if I can get through you. So, I mean, they were basically buying access or they were using attacks against passwords, you know, and things like that. So, but, but what they did is they found the flaws in their thinking. And what they did is they actually attacked 
again, it goes back to being overwhelmed, right? They, they're attacking these people who are coming in and on Monday, they've got a full inbox. They've got tons and tons of things to do. So how do you prioritize? How do you do the one thing when you got a thousand things out there, right? What's the one thing that's important? It goes back to like David Allen, we talked about, or what's the one thing I can do right now that moves me closer towards my goals. And so what they have the advantage of attackers, bad guys and girls have the advantage of sitting and thinking about the problem differently than you do. Why? Because they don't have any constraints. By definition, they're criminals. So they, 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 they by nature think outside the box. Well, what if I did this? What if I did this? What if I did this? And then they keep trying those things and eventually they find out things that work. So the old saying was, you know, bad guys, you know, we have to be right 100% of the time. Bad guys only got to get lucky once. You know, and that's that's true, whether it's physical attacks, terrorism or cyber attacks. So so that's one of the things I looked at. It shows flaws in adult thinking because we're, we're not thinking about the problem correctly. Or you know what? We're not taking action against those things. It's kind of like we talk about awareness. You know, hey, watch out for phishing attempts. Watch out for these emails and links. Are we spending any time training people to look if you're getting solicited to provide access? This is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. You know, and why are they able to do it? Different culture, different generation. That could be part of the answer. It could be, hey, no loyalty. If you ask people 25 years ago what they did, they said, I work for IBM or I work for Cisco. You ask them now what you do, you say, they say, I'm a software engineer, I'm a developer. They identify more with their skills than they do the company. So how they align with their company and how they think about their company has changed. So we talked about that. And for me, I looked at it too, as I said, I think there'll be some, so Let's think for a minute about, I, I brought up China a little bit ago. China will become more active this year, especially in their targeting of research and development around vaccines and efficacy testing. And why is that? It's not for what you think it is. You think it's because people are dying over in China. Again, does that bother Xi Jinping? Not a lot. You know, they disappear people a lot over there. I mean, they've got the camps with the Uyghurs. You've got all these other things that have gone on. What's more concerning to Xi Jinping is his hold on power. What's happened in China is something that hasn't happened since Tiananmen Square, and that is a public uprising, a public pushback against authority. That's what he's worried about, not all the people dying. And it sounds harsh, but folks, you take the world as you find it, not as you wish it was. So the fact that they're, you know, that they're losing a few hundred thousand, it's of consequence, but it's not that big. Why? Because his, his whole goal is to maintain control of the, com the country. <coughs> Excuse me. So I think you'll see increased on stuff like that because it's about hold on power. You search Tiananmen Square in China, it's prohibited. It, there, are, there are kids growing up that have no idea. By the way, I even asked people, do you know how many people died that day? Estimates are over 10,000. Yeah, it's, it's crazy that they try and wipe that from any recollection that the citizens would have is absolutely. And then what they, and then taking over Hong Kong, they're just trying to rewrite history right yep. now itself, which is very sad and also... Well, but it's problematic because that's the whole thing. You have to be able to learn from history, right? Those who forget their history are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. So, I mean, so that's part of what I look at is how do we learn from history? So that, that's one of the things we've got to be careful of. The other thing I think, though, too, is I think from a, a nation point of view, this is one thing I looked at, too, from a national security standpoint, we have to retask our intelligence priorities. Give you an example. So the solar wind compromise that happened, and everybody's heard about it by now, right? I'm not picking on the company solar winds. That was the that's the one of the easiest ways to refer to it. 
But SolarWinds was not a cybersecurity company. But what Russia did was they found the flaws in our thinking, and the flaws in our thinking were we implicitly, if not explicitly, trust an update that comes from a company, and then we install it. So you get a patch from Microsoft, or are you a Mac guy or a PC guy? I'm a Mac guy. I'm a Mac guy too, right? But yep. do you have the resources that when you get an update from Apple that you reverse engineer it to see if there's any malware inside there? What are the implications? Or do you do like I do? I, I trust what comes from Apple. Basically, because I have no choice, what am I? What, what else am I going to do, right? And I install the patch, right? Yep, yep, the update. Yep. I I trust what comes. And and actually, as a side comment on the Mac front, I've got. I think my wife believes this, and I've got some friends still too. They think just because Apple is Apple that no attacks can get through. And I'm like, that thinking is <laughs> wrong, wrong, no. wrong, wrong, wrong. No, 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 oh, no, 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 no. It's <laughs> yeah. shameless plug for Sentinel One, which I don't really do other than our podcast, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com, which you can find on any major podcast platform. <laughs> I might have said that once or twice, but our Sentinel Labs has done some great research. And one of the things they do is they look at all the attacks on Macs and the way that they're compromising Macs. So it used to be that Macs weren't a big target. Why? Because 90% of the desktops and more than that were Windows. You You went where it is. But when you look at Unix, you know, Linux and stuff like that, there's still attacks against those. So, yeah, don't, don't do that. But the reason I was saying that is SolarWinds is that because we implicitly trusted it, we installed the update. So all they had to do was violate the trust between us and the people providing the updates, and they're able to walk their way into all of these different systems. So, but the reason I say that is when Brad Smith, George Kurtz, and Kevin Mandiant, they testified before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence on this a couple months after it was discovered. Brad Smith, actually, Microsoft does some great research, you know, and one of the things they said is Brad Smith says our people took a look at it and looked at the malware, and they said for this operation to work, they think it would take about a 1,000 software engineers to do. So my question was, you have a 1,000 Russians working on this. Why did not our intelligence agencies, predominantly the CIA, but the NSA, or the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, which, by the way, here's a trivia fact for you. DIA is the largest intelligence agency there is in the United States. They've got more, far more people than the CIA. But why, with a 1,000 people, why did we not go take somebody out, get them drunk, and say, okay, Vladimir, you know, Petrov, what what the hell's going on? What are you guys working on? You know, um, we, we've, we've relied so much on technology, we forgot sometimes the easiest way is what Lapsus did is go after the people. I want to I compromise something. Maybe it's easier to maybe it's easier to compromise the people than it is the system because if I can compromise the people, I get into the system, then the system treats me as a trusted insider. So I think one of the things we have to do is we have to retask our intelligence priorities, and we've got to start looking at disrupting these things before we start getting hit with them because the way we find out about them is after they've wound down or after they've basically achieved their objective as opposed to stopping them before it happens. So I, I look at this the same way of looking at – nuclear technology, building things you don't want. You know, we look at, we were concerned about North Korea and Iran, as we should be, Pakistan, India, you know, some of the people with nuclear powers in a region, kind of a volatile area. A couple of times, Pakistan and India have almost gone to war. And we look, what do we look at? We look at those indicators. What does our intelligence tell us? Are they fueling up rockets? Are they moving certain things? There's certain things you have to do, you know, or what's the chatter saying? So I think, you know, one of the things we have to do from a nation is is retask some of our intelligence priorities and put a lot more effort into human human intelligence as opposed to SIGINT, signal intelligence, ELINT, electronic intelligence. But the best kind of intelligence there is, it's rumor, rumor intelligence. Believe it or not, you can tell a rumor, it spreads faster than information does sometimes, you know? That's yeah. a joke. <laughs> Room it. 
the well, telephone we, the telephone game? Actually, so this is a real story down at Department of Justice I'm working on. They said, hey, look, you know, they wanted to figure out what's a better way to share information between all these agencies. I said, I'll tell you what, here's the way to do it, to start a real juicy rumor and find out how that rumor spreads because that's how information gets shared better than how do rumor – you know, rumors spread so fast by the time you get home, you hear the rumor about yourself, you know, and it's like, how does that work? You know, so, but, but seriously, but again, it goes back to people. So I, I look at all of these things, you know, we're, we're looking at the people equation of this. That's one of the biggest challenges we have in cybersecurity is, and people are a bad line of defense. People are, should never be the first line of defense in cybersecurity. Never. Why? Because we can't think as fast as a one and zero can. We can't think as fast as a processor can, you know, we can't, we can't, and nor can we think we cannot react as fast. So machine speed attacks need machine speed defenses, you know, and so we've got to be able to respond to these that way. Yeah, that is, that is so good. I love what you said that we're going to pull that quote out on the machine piece. You also said about talking about people are their own worst enemy. I love that. I, when I interviewed Tim Romer and Nancy Ranisak, Tim was the state CISO for Arizona before he just moved to the private sector when the governor mansion switch change happened. And when I had the Phoenix Lab podcast tour, they talked about how people are the weakest link and how to, why not enough organizations and companies have the training required to actually, because like what you said about machine needing machine capabilities to fight against, back against machine, you know, that attacks, yeah. attacks is like, but there's so many people and if people are the weakest link, we have to be able to train people to recognize these types of, of, of attacks. Well, actually, let, let me, let me, let's, let's explore that for a second. If I do a good enough job, if I think this through, those attacks should never made it, make it to you so that you have to think about them. It's like phishing emails and spear phishing emails. And you're seeing a lot of solutions that should get to the point to where that never makes it to the person for them to click on that link. Yep. So we've got to get to that point. So my question is, why can't we design something that prevents those emails from even getting there? Or if they get there, what we've done is we've stripped out the links and everything and identified that said, look, this might be legit. We think it's a phishing email, but we've we've stripped out the link and make you go through the effort to say, no, that's not the case. This is real. I need, you know, whatever that link was. But, you know, most of the time it's some of these things are so simple. What we ought to be training people on is like these um Business email compromise and voice compromises to where they call up pretending to be the CEO saying, hey, I, I, I don't have very much time, but I need you to go do this. And I'm in a meeting offsite. You know, very easy solution to that. You just create a company wide policy that says no, absolutely not. If it doesn't come in through regular channels, you as the employee are authorized to say no to the transaction and to call on a trusted number on a trusted communication channel and get approval directly from that person. Why is the CEO sending me a third-level employee an email or a, a voice, you know, calling me up, saying, hey, I need you to do this for me. I, I, I'm going to a wedding and I need – you wouldn't believe – you know, well, everybody – nobody wants to say no to the CEO. So what you do is you say, yeah, you can say no because most of the time that is not the CEO. You're not saying no to the CEO. You're saying no to somebody impersonating the CEO or business email compromise or things like that. One of the biggest email, business email compromises happened in the Southern District of New York because – it attacked people. And what happened was a company that used a third-party processor for their invoices 
Somebody targeted not the company, but the third-party processor pretending to be the company. And what did they say? Hey, we decided to change our banks. This is what we're changing it to, so I need you to make this change. Well, the company wanted to be responsive. Oh, yes, whatever you need. They didn't want to question the customer. What did they do? So a Romanian couple was just recently arrested for this, probably like a year ago. $95 million. $95 million in one week was siphoned away. Now, they were able to claw most of that back. What should have happened is the third party would have said, hey, we appreciate that. You're a, you're a valued customer. But according to your own policy, it says that we have to seek and get verbal. We have to call directly in, get verbal approval, as well as written authorization, you know, through our standard channels before we can do that. If they had had something in place like that, if you want to train people to be the first line of defense, they're more effective against that. So the largest business email compromise so far occurred in the Southern District of New York, $95 million dollars. And the way it worked, and the reason I say that, if you want to train people, train people not against, you know, the phishing attacks, we ought to be able to do that. But we ought to be able to train them to look at things because, see, there are no links. There's no malware in these other emails. They're simply, they're using social engineering. They're using sense of urgency, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, basically manipulation, deceit, influence, and deceit to get you to do something, a, take a targeted action. So in this case, it was a third-party processor that has a very large customer that they're processing tens of millions of dollars each week for them. And somebody sent them an email said, hey, we're changing our banks. This is where it is. And what they should have said is, instead of going, you're our customer, we want to be responsive, absolutely, we'll change the banking information for you. What should be in place is a response that says, anytime we say we're going to change a bank, here's the five things you have to do. You have to call, first of all, directly into our corporate offices, our numbers, talk directly to the CFO and get, number one, a verbal, a, a verbal approval that says, yes, we're doing that. Number two, then you have, then we have to send you, we will have a secure form or secure channel that we communicate on. We will send you authenticated documents from us. You know, so you have to have a process, a protocol in place because changing a bank is not a trivial thing, but they did it and they lost $95 million. Now they arrested a Romanian couple, were able to basically extradite them and claw most of that money back. But if it was that easy, imagine what else is going on. And there was no malware, no links. So what we ought to be training people is training people to say no. Before they say yes, no, I, hey, I need you to send this to me. No. Number one, I don't know who you are. Number two, I don't know what purpose it's for. And number three, no, because we've never agreed to do that. whatever it might be. Right. I'm just making up stuff. So it's easier to say no and then fix the problem that is to say yes and try and or it's easier to say no and prevent the problem than as it is to say yes and fix the problem. One of the last questions that I was interested in to, to hear from you is on IntraCode, we kind of talked about chat GTP and fraud. Love to hear a little bit more about that. I know that was kind of in the threats in 2023. If you could just speak to that and then we'll wrap up and get out of here. Sure. Well, I think the chat GPT, the, the, it's, it's interesting because it's a direct threat to Google search because now it's giving you responses. You can actually ask it questions and it formulates responses. They're using it in a variety of ways for cybersecurity research. In fact, we're seeing examples right now of where kids are writing programs and games using just chat GPD to do it. GPT, you can use the chat function to, hey, how do I do a SQL injection attack? Or how do I do, you know, you can ask it very technical things. Or how do I initiate a Java X, whatever it is. It's been a long time since I've written any code. Believe it or not, one of my degrees was computer information systems. And I have no idea how those things work anymore at that level. So, but I think, I think it's, I think what it is, it's one of those things, is it fully formed yet? No, but we're getting to the point of where we go from narrow AI you know, dumb AI where it can do it can do certain things and use machine learning to artificial general intelligence. That's the space odyssey 
2001, you know, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that, where it's actually, in a sense, almost becoming a sentient being and, and being able to formulate responses and thoughts. So, I mean, the thing that concerns me about that is it's concerns me because we haven't thought through all the things it can do. But I'll give you a final example here. Who are the Nobel Prizes named after? Alfred, Alfred Nobel. Nobel. Yeah. You know what Alfred Nobel actually is famous for? He invented dynamite. Dynamite was supposed to be invented for peaceful purposes. And guess what? Somebody goes, wow, we could blow up bridges with this and we could blow up bank doors. And, you know, so here it's a dual use thing. So I'm, I'm, what I'm looking at, I'm concerned is not how it's being used today. What are the ways that it's going to be used in the future? And how should we be thinking about defending against that now versus later? Because once the genie's out of the bottle, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, as they say, to overuse a bunch of analogies, there's no putting it back, right? So what do we do? It's out there. Yeah, it's out there. And I think I was reading something, I don't know how true it is or not, but Google is it's kind of like basically like a code red or whatever they have internally. They are freaking out right now. It's all hands on deck. All hands on deck. Yep, it's all hands on deck, which begs the question for me is who on the intelligence side is also a all hands on deck for the very reasons you were just talking about right now. That's a good question, and that would involve having knowledge of classified information, which I'm no longer cleared to have. So if I did have it, I'd be in violation of federal law, and if I told you, you'd be going to prison with me. So we'll do a podcast called Prison Podcast, you know, and we'll do a whole new thing. <laughs> Let's not go to prison in 2023 as we have that. There's a goal. There's a goal. Let's stay out of prison. There's a goal. Let's stay out of prison in 2023. One last time. Where can we find the Game of Crimes podcast? Morgan, give it to us. Go to your favorite podcast platform and just type in Game of Crimes or go to GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got it listed there, our stores there, the merch is there, all of our previous episodes, pictures. You know, And the thing I really like, too, is the books. We only highlight books that are written by the actual people on our show. If it's, if it's a book about the subject, we don't pimp that out. We only pimp out the things that our guests have written or co-authored. And so we have, like say, about 40 books on there. So you can go find that. And I would be remiss if I say, and you can also find out a lot more about what we do as a company, Sentinel One. Go to sentinel1.com. Got a lot of great stuff there, a lot of webinars, a lot of good material, Sentinel Labs. So go there and really great website. Very good. Get a lot of awards for it. And it's, it's, and it's a fun thing to do. It's a family fun. It's a, it's a wholesome family activity that everybody can do. Yep, yep. And if you head to, I believe it is patreon.com backslash Game of Crimes podcast. Did I get that right? No, com slash Game of Crimes. So. Game of Crimes. There it is. All right, and that's where you'll be able to find that. Thank you for coming on the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. This was a blast. We're actually going to turn this around, and I say we, my wife, will, will edit this, and we will turn this episode around pretty quickly. I know there's a lot of folks who've been at Sentinel One who've been asking about this, so I'm excited to to drop this pretty quickly. And I will see you in Orlando at the Orlando Live Podcast Tour event. March 18th. March, March 18th. Mark Let's your calendars. Go. Mark your calendars. You're listening to The Public Sector Show by Tech Tables, a podcast dedicated to sharing human-centric stories from CIOs and technology leaders across the city, county, state, and federal agencies, joining in the conversation and touching the hearts and minds of leaders across technology today. From mission-driven leadership to cloud, AI to cybersecurity, workforce challenges, and more, never miss insights from peers and vendor partners across the public sector. 
to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to techtables.com and drop your email to subscribe. New podcast episodes come out every Tuesday and Thursday, along with weekly behind-the-mic newsletter. And one of today's podcast sponsors is Tech Tables Plus, an engaging new community where you can have early access to never-before-released episodes, early access to live event recordings, early access to weekly three interesting learnings, early access to live event ticket purchases, no episode ads, and more. Plus three extra special bonuses when you sign up today. Bonus number one, access to the CEO show. Bonus number two, access to the higher ed show. And bonus number three, access to the digital show. Join Tech Tables Plus today. As always, thank you for supporting the Tech Tables Network.